1: Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
3: Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was we'll
4: good.
2: But be careful because the worst trips result when two partners
5: have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano!
6: Huh? Oh! Gene!
7: I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin.
5: And I'm David Gurra. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hey, everybody. Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, if you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you. But – you can make your own decisions.
8: Hello, and welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about how the world is falling apart and sometimes about how people are putting it back together. What it is today, it's me. I'm James, if you haven't worked that out yet. And I'm joined by Shireen. Say hi, Shireen.
4: Hi, th- this is Shireen.
8: Thank you. <laughs> and I'm joined today by uh, Vicente Calderon, Uh, He's a freelance journalist and the proprietor publisher of TijuanaPress.com. And he's covered uh, the situation on the ground in Tijuana for a very long time. It's an excellent work. Um, Vicente, what should people know about you?
9: Nice to have you here. Thank you Thank you for the invitation. And in advance, I have to apologize for my English because this is a mixture of Sesame Street and the Tijuana Streets. (laughs) (laughs) It's excellent. Take a picture in the burro kind of English as we joke here. (laughs) Uh, I'm a a, a real, originally I'm a psychologist. I graduated from the school of psychology here, but I only worked for a couple of years. And then I got stuck with journalism and I have been here for more than 30 years by now. I've been doing journalism from radio and then I moved to television. And then I went to the U.S. to work with Spanish language media twice in L.A. And then I came back, and now I'm I'm doing online or, or, or digital medium uh, journalism, so to speak. So I'm a native here, and <laughs> again, I was just supposed to be working this for a while until I got <laughs> old enough to look like a psychologist, but it, <laughs> it just got caught on the on the um, addiction for journalism.
8: Yeah, mm. I understand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's fascinating all right so um the reason we're talking to you today is that we have seen a dramatic increase in violence in tijuana since friday right we're recording this on the tuesday the 16th of august so if people listening to it later they'll know but can you explain a little bit of what happened over the weekend in tijuana and then across mexico as well
9: well the thing began on friday here in Mexicali And Tijuana, Mexicali is the capital of the state of Baja California, which is in the northwestern side of the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, So we began seeing people burning cars on the road. They were just ordering people from public transportation to get off the vehicle, uh, not in a very, so to speak, threatening matter kind of way, because they said, well, the problem is not with you, but you have to get off. Because otherwise, because when are we going to burn this bus and, and nobody was actually, nobody was really hurt intentionally. We have just in Tijuana, we have about 15 cases like that was mainly public transportation vehicles or some cases, trucks, cargo trucks or private vehicles, but most of it were public transportation vehicles with people who were working and were moving people from their homes to their works or to, want to run one errand to another side. So we began to see that this was in a very limited space of time happening, not only in, in Tijuana and in Mexicali, but also in five out of seven cities of Baja California. Nobody was claiming responsibility, but it looks like it was a coordinated effort in the basically the main cities of the state, uh, we were very surprised because even though we have been dealing with drug violence for many decades by now, we never seen something who looks like the narco bloqueos or blockades of the streets with drug traffickers, which are unfortunately very common in other cities like Monterrey, for example, recently in Jalisco. Um, uh, on the Pacific coast, very in the central part of Mexico, but not here in Tijuana. I mean, um, I, I know it sounds ra- rare or, or strange for many people who know Tijuana for his bad reputation, but no, we never had cases like this before. That's why it was so surprising. At the end, that was on Friday, and then immediately the local authorities began to display not only police from different different agencies, but also soldiers who were coincidentally, so to speak, were here in big numbers in large numbers because there's a really uh, big push to put out more soldiers to help with public safety in Mexico. Not everybody's pleased with that because it's, they say that Mexico is becoming a militarized country and it shouldn't be because we, have, have to, we are trying to be a democracy and in a democracy is not the the military or the army in charge of so much responsibility. But that's something that has been changing specifically with this new federal administration with the President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. So they sent out all of the soldiers and police officers, and things basically diminished. But by that time, in about about less than two hours, uh, people was already really scared. Obviously, the news spread in social media and um, people began worrying. Uh, also, they they began seeing that the public transportation was not enough because many were just came to a halt. I mean, and not just the public transportation, the official of the city, but all the digital platforms like Uber, Didi, or other uh, services, were just worried that it might be the next one. So um, if I stay on the roads... Am I going to be the target of these guys? We were not sure what was going on. We, I guess, every Tijuana has like a, an idea that this was coming or linked to drug trafficking, but we were not sure at that time. So um, in a couple of hours, every uh, we didn't see more of these cases, but but at that time the city was really disrupted. So they began closing. I mean, the first thing affected was public transportation. So people was stranded without with no ways to go back home. And some schools were canceling classes. And since the students were not able to find transportation, some offered places to stay or spend the night on the schools. Also, that happened in in um, with other companies, with the maquiladora plants, the, the manufacturing plants that are very popular. There's thousands of people here in, in Tijuana who work there, also in Mexicali. But here also, they, in some cases, have to open spaces so they can spend the night there. And we went out and was a lot of people stranded with no place, with no way to move from where they were when this began.
8: Yeah, I saw even like uh, CaliMax that the supermarket was closed, right? Like
9: they did close early and they announced that the next day they will hold their operations, that they will not open. So they will not put in jeopardy to the safety of their workers. I mean, and they at that during Friday, we didn't know what really what was going on. How severe was this happening? And just keep in mind that on Friday, Friday was the end of the of a week of very violent scenes in different cities. It began in Guadalajara when the where the army was trying to capture a couple of drug lords or chief of cells from the uh, Jalisco Nueva Generación Cartel or the Jalisco New Generation Cartel, which is the quote-unquote newest and strongest and most rapidly expanding drug organization in Mexico. And the problem is there, the dynamic was very, very different. Again, in Tijuana, even after the weekend, nobody was killed. Just one person in Mexicali got uh, injured due to burns when while they were burning the, his truck, but apparently nothing major. So, in the case of it was completely different. They were at gunpoint pulling people, families out of their private vehicles and also buses, and then there they were really actually blockading roads in an effort to disrupt the the operation from the soldiers trying to capture their, their bosses. And so the violence were, were way more strong, so to speak, there. And after that, it moved to Gu- Guanajuato, another state where, where there's high presence of Cartel Jalisco, new generation. And two days later, we saw the worst case in Ciudad Juarez, across from El Paso, Texas. Ciudad Juarez is also another border town or border city, should say, that has been dealing with a lot of drug trafficking cases, and and the things was terribly worse there. I mean, they were there killing civilians randomly. They got to convenience stores, like think about your Seven Eleven. The the counterpart is called also. It's a very uh, big chain. Chain. In uh, in a in one of these cases, they just. Went in, opened fire to the cashier, and they killed him. In other cases, a, a pregnant woman got killed, and another one. Since they burned these these uh, places, uh, the woman who there's two persons who died due to asphyxiation because they got were cut up. They were not able to flee the 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 place when these guys were were show, showing up there. Many of these guys were also yelling or screaming. Um, Hooray for the Jalisco New Generation boss, who is called uh, Oseguera. I, uh, I can't remember his name. Men- Mencho, Mencho Oseguera. Mencho is his nickname. Mencho Oseguera is the leader of Cartel Jalisco New Generation, and they were just praising him and just saying that they were people from Mencho, and this they were just uh, celebrating him as they were doing all this destruction and terrorizing people. So the worst part was in, in Ciudad Juarez, sadly. I'm not saying that this was not bad, but just we have to put it in perspective. And fortunately here, sadly for the people of Ciudad Juarez, fortunately for the people here, nobody was injured in those activities uh, uh, on Friday. That diminished on Saturday, but we got more cases on Sunday night in Mexicali. And we actually have uh, four, uh, about four cases on the first on the last hours of Monday in Ensenada. We are still seeing if all of these have been related to the same effort due to organized crime or are just copycats. Because unfortunately, unfortunately that also is happening. Some of the cases in Mexicali that happened on Sunday night uh, were, according to the chief of police there, just copycats were just taking advantage of the situation.
4: I see. Well, well that's, that's interesting because until someone takes responsibility, even if they do, all the talks about like what cartels are what, that's just like in theory, right? Because you don't know who's doing what. Am I understanding correctly?
9: Well, yes, because it's, it's, it's not like when a terrorist organization claims responsibility for a bombing on in the Middle East, for example. But here the, the thing is, now the authorities are saying that it was not just one, but different organizations. They blame it mainly on Jalisco New Generation because it's one of the, along with the Sinaloa cartel, more broadly extended in, in the state, different states. And in this particular case, they can link it in the case of Jalisco and Guanajuato because they got information of these two bosses uh, getting into a meeting, and that's why they reacted. In in the case of Ciudad Juarez was different because everything began there with a dispute within inmates of the local jail, where there are clearly two factions from the, the two main organizations who have been controlling turf in, in, the, in Ciudad Juarez. Here, we were not sure because, unfortunately, we have not just one or two, we have three drug cartels or trafficking organizations who have been acting or, or uh, delinquent uh, for the several years right now, which is the Jalisco New Generation, the one we talk about, which is the relatively newest organization. The Sinaloa Cartel, who has been from the cradle of drug trafficking in Mexico, the state of Sinaloa, expanding the routes that I'm sure they know El Chapo from the narco series, very popular now, uh, has been uh, the, the public enemy number one according to Chicago uh, for uh, about eight years ago, and now in a in a jail in New York. But their their sons and their associates are still operating their trafficking organization along different routes in Mexico. And, and Baja California is one of those routes where they have a, lot, a strong presence. And also the Arellano-Felix Drug Organization, the so-called Tijuana cartel that is very popular, has its own um, series on netflix as part of narcos mexico this is the relevance of these kids who who grow up uh, as as criminals at the border between tijuana and san diego so we nobody has claimed responsibility uh, um, as in other cases but i think it's 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 safe to know that these are the main suspects in the case of tijuana it's also the possibility that the feud between these three organizations um, was an excuse for this level of violence. I mean everybody's trying to be the strongest force. so they challenged themselves not on the, not only on the streets but on social media, and this was uh, also a way to challenge the authorities because even though the authorities reacted quickly and kind of subdue more or, or, or frustrate more events, they were able to burn. 15 cars at the end of the week and were 36 in different areas, in different cities. So that is not something that you can say. Now the authority is the military uh, chief of the country saying, well, in Tijuana, they didn't attempt it against so, um, the civilians. Well, they did. They didn't kill them, but they burned their property and they disrupted the whole operation. So we are also seeing very carefully the way the local the local and national authorities are reacting because we were lucky now but this is probably will happen again if there's not a really strong response from an, an intelligent response from the authorities
4: yeah okay i'm sorry if it, i'm sorry if this is silly but is there any deeper meaning to it being specifically public transportation like it just seems so specific to like target how civilians are, like, transporting themselves? Is it, is it just, like, a show of power to be, like, we're going to make everyone freeze? Or there, is there any deeper meaning to, like, what they're targeting?
9: Not that I understand so far. I mean, for me right now is because, as they did, uh, they were successful in and, and bringing the city to a halt. I mean, we went out and just think this was a Friday summer night in Avenida Revolución. Who has seen a renaissance since the last? have been for the last ten years. There's a lot of people coming from the U.S. side and from Mexico to enjoy the gastronomy local, the the bars, the the, the party scene. Was dead. The only people we were found we found there Friday night was um, workers that were not able to find an Uber or, or the Uber was. I talked to some of the Uber drivers, the DD drivers told me it went from one to seven. Uh, I mean, it, something will cost you $10, Were, we're costing the price was now seven seventy dollars due to the high demand and poor offer. So no, I don't find another, another explanation so far, so far with the information that we have until now um, that could explain, but they did, reach a big impact with these relatively easy actions uh, after all these coordinated attacks.
8: Yeah, it's probably worth mentioning the context of, in uh, one of Guzman's kids was arrested in, I believe, 2018. I'm not good at dates, but around then, and there was a huge, huge increase in violence immediately following that, right? And eventually... Amlo, uh, the the president, gave the order to release him.
9: And oh, that was yeah, that was more recent. Was Ovidio, one of the main sons, in in, in something that we call the Culiacanazo. Culiacan <laughs> is the name of the city, is the capital of the state of Sinaloa. As we said, I have family. My mother is from Sinaloa, and, and some people from Sinaloa get offended when we say that it's a cradle of drug trafficking in Mexico because most of the power, the law, the drug laws come from. From from Sinaloa, but yeah, you're right. You're right, Uh, and that's something that has become a big recurrent topic when people criticize, especially the the political opposition, criticize the current president, because uh, they said this is the origin of these kind of demonstrations. So when when the government wants to act, now the criminals know that. An effort, a coordinated effort to get out on the streets and to show their muscle could um, make the government to think twice, to, to hold their operation and to free, in some cases, these guys. Again, in the case of Jalisco, they were on the way, according to the official statement from the Mexican army, to try to capture these two leaders, but didn't happen. I mean, the, 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 the criminals get organized to blockade the actions of the authorities. In the case of Tijuana, we were not, we didn't get to that point, it was more like, there's also one theory which says that the local chapter, so to speak of the Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generacion was just trying to replicate what happened there just to, to, to show the force, though to demonstrate the muscle as, mm-hmm. a, as a criminal organization here in Tijuana. Yeah, that's I, basically I, the two theories that right. this bit a dispute between them, and w- and the other one is that um they were just replicating a little bit in a in a in a different dimension, so to speak, what happened in in Mexicali, just to tell them if you do the same here, this is what you're gonna be facing, and that was a message for the authorities.
4: Yeah, I I saw a resident compare it to. Uh, what it was like in the early stages of COVID, like how ghost town it was. And I mean, when you think about it, that's pretty powerful. If a cartel can have the impact of a pandemic, <laughs> if not more so, it's, it's, uh, it's terrifying. I can't imagine.
9: I think it was worse when we went out w- w- when COVID first began in the lockdown. And this will be too silly, but there's the red light districts that never uh, sleeps here. We went to that particular corridor, nobody was in the main drag there. But it's a reality. We, 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 just, we went out and we got video of these streets basically empty.
8: Yeah, your video on your Twitter, we'll, we'll find a way to link to it, was incredible. It was just like, this is normally like uh, the strip in Las Vegas or something, and it was just a ghost town.
9: A ghost town, yeah. yeah. Again, yeah. the only people we found there, was uh, people looking for transportation.
8: Yeah, it's crazy. So there's been a massive, at least show, of state power in Tijuana in the last, I don't know, four, five, six months. Like They're constantly rotating new troops in. They do the parades with the big flag. uh, And it's like... To to looking from the outside, from a less informed perspective, it looks like there are these various actors, right? And each of them sort of uh, flexes their muscles in a different way, um, and is that relevant here? Has the army? They discovered a tunnel, if I remember correctly. Have they done much else in, in Baja since they started these big deployments?
9: No, that's one of the main complaints of the locals' uh, organizations, uh, civil or civilian organizations here, because. Even though we have, I'm going to I make some notes, and we have 5,660 soldiers um, right now in the state of Baja California, most of them in Tijuana, who have been deployed since August last year, which is when the National okay. strategy, strategy of Peace, as the government called it, begun. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, I can give you another statistics. We have... Only uh, Just in Tijuana, in the municipality of Tijuana, so far this year, almost 1,200 homicides. I mean, we as as a city, as a municipality, we have way more homicides than many Mexican states. This is the level of violence that we are dealing with in a daily basis. And, And this is when you hear the authorities talking about a reduction on homicides which is true, probably true in terms of, of the numbers of statistics, but still, 1,000, we, um, we are a little bit past half the year, and we already passed 1,000 homicides. I mean, when people get uh, alarmed in, in Chicago is when you are hitting, I remember a couple of years ago, like 500, uh, and the whole year. We have this in three months, and, 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 and this is the kind of of problems that we're we're dealing with. But you have to also keep in mind, last week, the DOJ of the U.S., the FBI, the DA, Customs and Border Protection, have a gathering to announce that San Diego became the epicenter for smuggling of fentanyl. Sixty percent of the seizures of fentanyl in all the nation occur between San Isidro, the main port of entry here in San Diego, to Calexico. In this, there are six ports of entry in this stretch of land on the end of the border, on the western end of the border. Well, these places is where more than half of the fentanyl that is being smuggled to the U.S. is it, going through. That will explain partly the level of bias that we've been dealing and how even though there's good efforts, uh, by the local authorities, state and local authorities. I mean, even given that there's cases of corruption as in any other agency, um, I always say that we have great, very capable detectives and police officers in Mexico, but there, but in many cases, there's no political will from their bosses to really act on on, on, the, on the benefit in the public. So... And this is the kind of be, the problem that we're uh, You know, fentanyl is now the most uh, lucrative drug to, to transport or, or traffic uh, between Mexico and the U.S. Even with all the problem that is causing in the U.S. with more than 120,000 people dying in the last year or overdoses linked to opioids. But also now we have a problem that is growing with people dying with fentanyl overdose. Uh, besides the fentanyl, the, the methamphetamine problem that also has been increasing uh, the traffic here. And now we are seeing the comeback of some drugs trafficking and and new levels like heroin and cocaine, who came out of fashion for a while, but now is doing like kind of a resurgence, at least in this corridor.
8: Yeah, that's fascinating. Like there's been an increase specifically coming through that, that Baja California area. Maybe then we should explain a little bit about these three actors, right? The uh, CJNG, we'll call them the Cartel de Sinaloa, and the Ariano Felix, or Tijuana Cartel. Can you explain a little bit about who they are and where they sort of fit into this,
9: or where they come from, maybe? Well, I basically all come from the... Uh, <laughs> people watching Netflix, Narcos and Netflix, they talk about this federation of cartels. Again, everything, the main power was from the state of Sinaloa, and between 19, the mid-90s, 1994, mid-90s, when the arrest of uh, Felix Gallardo, they reestablished, they distributed the routes, and one was the, uh, the one of the Pacific, along the Pacific, from Sinaloa to the, along the Pacific. And they basically um, cut the country into different domain routes, and then you have different organizations. Those organizations who used to be together, Became a powerful uh, house on their own, and that has increased the violence from the '90s. Because now you have, from the beginning, the the Ariano Felix, who used to be partners with El Chapo, uh, uh, ended up in, in disputes and feuds among them. So the the main one is was the main one and oldest is the Sinaloa cartel, head by El Chapo Guzman, uh, and now. Uh, Ismael El Mayo Zambada, which is still a gentleman gentleman around probably getting to their this 80s. Yeah. I'm not quite sure, but but who has been on the run for many years, but relatively calm and with big investments and with the high presence here in Baja California, with that faction of the Sinaloa Cartel. And the Sinaloa Cartel also, when the, after the arrest of El Chapo is it's run and the other big faction for the Sans. Of, of El Chapo Guzmán, Ovidio, and, and el, los cha, they call it Los Chapitos, <laughs> yeah. Los Chapos.
8: Yeah, the Lucia.
9: There's like three, three <laughs> Ivan Archivaldo, and I can't remember the, the name of the other one. So that's a Sinaloa Cartel with wheat presence, but it mainly in the northern part, and really mainly basic, basically uh, their thing is to manufacturing um, methamphetamine and now fentanyl and send it to the U.S. Um, then the Arellano Felix drug organization who became as a result of that division, that distribution that uh, according to the most commonly known narrative about drug world, um, Felix distributed after his arrest, established themselves in, in Tijuana. They are from Sinaloa too, but they established themselves from Tijuana in the, actually in the eighties, but at the nineties. They became powerful on its own. And they, due to the proximity of San Diego and to the fact that they mixed with many of the border lifestyle elite of Tijuana, they changed the image of the drug trafficker. They became more entrepreneurs and they wanted to become the main, the first Mexican cartel, Colombian Pablo Escobar style, according to the narrative, no? And they did. They became in the nineties. They were most one of the, the most powerful drug organization in the world for the amount of, of not just marijuana but cocaine that they were moving. I mean, they established relationships with Colombia, and, and after a while, Colombians were not trafficking in Mexico. They were just sending the drug to the Mexicans. At the beginning, they were uh, Colombians were kind of leasing the routes in the Mexican territory to send the drugs into the U.S. But then. When this division of and and newcomers and the drug trade in Mexico, they be, they decide, and I think the the Ariano Felix have some um, something to do with that. They want to go and get the, the drugs from Colombians in the south in South America and bring in and just take care of the whole thing, so it become their own cartel. And then then uh, Jalisco Nueva Generacion is another offshoot. Up- up- is what you call it? Like a yes. A yeah, sp- yeah. Spinoff, a spinoff kind of <laughs> yeah. would be another way <laughs> of, the, of the Sinaloa cartel because they used to have um, a presence in Guadalajara and the different factions were killing each other, changing loyalties, and they became a force on, on their own um, after a big division between the Beltran Leyva group and the Ignacio Coronel uh, organization, and they became their own cartel uh, on its own. And and that's where according to the DEA and and also Mexican authorities is expanding more rapidly in very short period of time. And then unfortunately have been moving not only to drug trafficking, but there's many small groups that now are making their money and the old way of the mafia, the Cosa Nostra was doing their money in New York in the 70s or before, no, that they were just Extorting money out of local businesses from a well-established chain of stores to a little tag stand on the corner. There's also the trafficking of gasoline in Mexico and and has been doubling. I mean, anything that they, once they get powerful, they began to move to other activities. For example, in the case of the Ariano Ferris, kidnapping wasn't a thing. Let's say before the ninety, uh, before the the nineties in Baja California, they were kidnapping people who own who used to be their their associates. Is the the where's my money kind of thing, no? Like you th- yeah. think about good fellows and 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 they were killing each other, but everything among themselves. Uh, mm-hmm. But later they began that they were were they were acting with a lot of impunity. That they had a lot of cops and authorities on their payroll. So they began to move to other ways to earn money. And that's what we are seeing now, that this expanding, this little, as it, in, in Colombia they used to call it baby cartels. We now have like a new chapters, smaller organization, not as powerful, but as violent as, as the original.
8: I wanted to ask because I saw a lot of these like uh, supposedly like they come up on TikTok or Facebook, right? These little announcements from the different cartels. And they tend to say, at least in the context of Baja California, that like we don't want to disrupt uh, ordinary people or good people, or good citizens of Baja California, you know, but we need you to stay in your homes this weekend. Right. Things like that. But it, it obviously does have an impact on the people who... Are just sort of doing whatever they do, just running their business. Um, so I was wondering, sort of, how people get through these difficult times in, in Tijuana and Baja California.
9: Well, times are becoming more difficult because many people believe this because the widespread possibility of, of, of disseminating these messages, no, and you never know which ones are real, yes, and which ones are not. Um, I mean, you guys have the same with the gangs. Remember, like, don't blink your, your headlights because then the gang will start killing people left and right. So <laughs> yes, just yeah. take that on steroids now with social media and, and now everybody with a phone that can get that messages. And that was that played a big role in what happened on, on Friday here in Tijuana. They were recycling uh, a video of three guys um, videotaping themselves in front of the Attorney General's office in Tijuana says, oh, Manchu is here, uh, we're going to kill everybody, and just being very loud and and and, and uh, with a lot of insults and trying to scare the, uh, everybody, the rivals yeah. but everybody else. So during the, the hours of Friday, somebody began retweeting that when it was uh, at least a year old <laughs> video of them claiming that that they will, they were already here. So some people think, well, this, all this commotion happening, all this cars burning, they didn't know exactly what was going on. Some people began to call it narco bloqueos that just scare more people. And then you see this. So the level of anxiety increased significantly. You have to be very careful. And, And there's also, you have to also keep in mind the political feuds that we are seeing. What you are seeing between some people loyal to Trump and the Republican Party and some people that are, are against Trump is the same here with Morena and non-Morena actors or people who like the Morena, which is the, the political party funded, created by the current president, and there's Manuel Lopez Obrador, all the ones who are against them and are very unhappy or angry with all these social policies. Um, and, and for example, we have here, a television station run owned by the former governor of Baja California who has is a very close friend of Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador the current president who became a very powerful figure and and due to his proximity with Lopez Obrador basically the current president revived this this gentleman which by the way lives in San Diego in Chula Vista in a big mansion uh because he exiled himself from about 30 years ago when he was associated with the last PRI government, the PRI, the political party to run Mexico for the last 70 years uh, in a row. Uh, he was a very close associate with Hicotenca uh, Tencatleba Mortera, which was the, the current governor who, who didn't finish his, his term because the and then president of Mexico, Carlos Salinas, accused him of corruption. So he just removed him. And this guy, Jaime Bonilla, uh, became pariah. So the PAN, the new power, basically marked him because also he has some previous suspicious relationships through the baseball team here in Tijuana and from other endeavors that makes them look like very close to the Ariano Felix Drug Organization. The Ariano Felix Drug Organization has been linked for many years with the last administration because they claim that that last PRI administration is the one who basically opened the door for the Ariano Felix to establish here in Baja California. So this is what we are seeing, that, that this message, is, well, now this guy who just left the, the office, the, the, Jaime Bonilla just finished his governorship on December last year. So there's a new governor, but he also owns a television station. So he, who is always criticizing the current governor, which is, by the way, the same political party, was uh, uh, using some of these messages with no proof or no validity or very suspicious. And he was saying in their newscasts, were saying, well, there's also this happening, there's this threats, and they know that this government is corrupt. And they were just adding. To, to the fire and see the, I mean as an analogy, not to the real fire, but but to the concern <laughs> of the people.
1: Right. <laughs> and in yeah.
9: this term, like saying that, oh, we're gonna start a lockdown and we'll be a uh, toke de queda. What's a word for toke the expression for de queda? Like the you cannot go out go yeah. out in the street.
1: The uh, martial, uh, law. Of course, like, yeah, yeah, martial yeah, law. yeah. yeah. Martial, martial
9: law. Yeah. Martial law will start at six uh, yeah. if we see you on the streets, we're gonna kill you. Yeah. That was a message that that wow. television station was repeating once and again every day. So was just adding to it. So all these like, new novelties, so to speak, with the digital era are also creating bigger fires in the political spectrum and in a place where you never know what exactly the line is between the criminals and the government.
8: Yeah, I think that's a very good uh, thing to highlight, actually, this idea that there's like distinct blocks, right? Like, uh, and that this applies in, I, I don't want to say like this is a Mexican thing because it's not, this is a global thing. But like that there's a distinct block between like crime and media that you consume and the government and the people that, that like are working for the state. Like, like the, the idea that these are very separate and that they're walled off doesn't, it doesn't apply here. And, it, and, and I don't think we should see it elsewhere either.
9: Yeah, it's, it's a problem. It's becoming, it's becoming worse and worse, no? Because uh, this faction now that have this other arena. I mean, we are seeing it here also with the official statements from the authorities. I mean, I was telling you earlier that, that the, the military had, the, the secretary of the military says, well, in Tijuana, they didn't win against the civilians. Uh, and, and the governor also repeated that. So, well, here fortunately, Fortuna, they didn't affect the, the, the life of the people. Of course of course they did I mean we were lucky they didn't kill anybody but but no they, they did and, and so you have to also be fighting that propaganda from the government against the propaganda from the criminal groups and the different political legal factions in other quote-unquote non-state actors just to put it yes. in, a, in a different context so it's becoming very difficult no and uh, yeah I always say excuse me if I repeat this but I honestly believe I mean, there's always great investigators, detectives in Mexico, willing to put put their lives on the line for the good of people. But it's not always in the best conditions. And and this is like just the character of traffic. Uh, probably you were you guys were very young when traffic came across. I mean, a, a very popular uh, movie, which is about from the '90s and end of the '90s, probably, yeah. Where where the one of the three main characters is a, an honest Mexican cops. I I fortunately I met several of the cases like that, but um, some of them have been killed due to the, their honesty, but also others that learn to survive and play along and try to do as much good as they can um, within the circumstances they are dealing with.
8: Yeah. I think talking of uh, of, of good investigators who, who are trying to deal with difficult circumstances, maybe you should touch on the violence against the press that we've seen in Baja California and in Mexico uh, oh. as a whole. Is that something you're comfortable talking about?
9: Yes, yes. Unfortunately, and this is terribly <laughs> sad, a, a couple of hours ago, we just learned that the one of the reporters who was reported missing in the Neighbors in state of Sonora was being found dead, so we have another killing of a of a reporter. We also saw that the the case of Ciudad Juarez, they killed four employees or four workers of a radio station. Yeah, that was terrible. Broadcaster, yeah.
6: Apparently
9: randomly, apparently randomly.
6: Okay,
9: but in I mean we, I mean depending on which uh, toll do you take, you you look to because there's like the official from the government, federal government from the CPJ, the Committee to Protect Journalists and or Reporteros Sin Fronteras, other organizations, varies. No, but this, there's about 10 or 15 between, I will say 10 or 14 or 15 journalists or media workers killed so far this year. We have two of those killings happening here in Tijuana in in January. Um, one of them, them, I'm convinced by now that he was killed for uh, the leader of a, uh, drug trafficking cell was operating in the east side of the city um, who wasn't pleased with some of the stories that one of the media outlets, his name is Margarito Martinez, one of the media outlets that Margarito was working to as a freelancer was, uh, was pushing very revealing stories about his, the, the operation of this drug trafficking. So he ordered and pay. For some other people to kill margarito because he in my humble opinion was the weakest link because he was living in the same neighborhood that these guys were operating working the night shift that is very common that only a few of them are left to to do that shift that bit uh he was easily identifiable identifiable for, for the crooks because Margarita will show up at the, uh, the crime scenes. And in many of these cases, you have people who work for the same organisa- organization showing up to make sure that the guy was really killed and who showed up. And, and I mean, even when the killing is done, the criminals are still working the scene. And in some cases, we met with these guys, guys without knowing. I mean, these guys were... were um, even willing to go to the funeral of Margarito. The only reason they were not there is because they, when they approached, they saw a lot of military presence on during the funeral. So I'm convinced that Margarito was killed due to his work as a, as a photographer. Uh, in the other case of my friend, old coworker uh, Lourdes Sandoval, I'm not sure what was the motive. In both cases, are three people in jail, but the procedure is still on the beginning stages. Uh, We are not proof. And the main thing is we don't know who order and pay for their killings. Well, we know, or I think I have a big suspicion about which one is the guy who killed them in the case of Margarito, not in the case of Lourdes and the authorities. I'm not confident enough that they're going to be able to solve the crime in these particular cases. The other one, there's two cases in Michoacan. There's other cases in Tamaulipas. Uh, I guess by now we have to count at least two or three in Sonora with the sad news that we got today. So it's difficult. I mean, not everybody is is risking their life when they're doing uh, journalism in Mexico. But you never know when the danger will jump against you. I have a, I always tell this story about a photographer who was called to cover a traffic accident. Minor, minor thing, no, not relevant. Well. well, the problem is that the, the guy who was involved in the traffic and in the accident was a drug lord, very, a very well-known operator, very dangerous operator. And he kept taking pictures. Thanks to some of the officers, firefighters, and ladies who saw that he was being uh, treated not very nicely and the ladies that intervened, he was able to get away. He had to leave town for a while. Uh, that's it, but that's the kind of environment that we are dealing with. It's not that every story makes you put you in danger, uh, but you never, I mean, you can do a lot of st- you, you can be a reporter and not be on danger, not be <laughs> you don't get into subjects that are tricky, you don't dig up too much in political corruption, and you don't dig up too much on on drug trafficking, on killing, and homicides. You're pretty much going to be able to to do. Fine, but, hmm. but the problem is sometimes if you are doing a story non-related, there may be some link to put you in danger. And that's the situation. And unfortunately, the level of impunity in, on crimes against journalists is even worse than the level of impunity of general civilians in Mexico. I will say that in general is about 90%, especially 98%, uh, and 98% for, for For case of journalists, 90% of civilians. So our case is worse. The possibility of somebody will be punished for killing you, it's it's very, very, very small.
8: Yeah, Yeah, I'm sorry. That's terrible.
4: I don't know. Again, like you said, it's not just a Mexican problem. You see it in so many governments across the world where press are targeted specifically. Um, But yeah, I appreciate your work even more, knowing that... The percentage of, of cases or just violence against you is so against you as a journalist is so high
9: It's very sad and it's very disencouraging but uh i always i mean, i mean my i have a family who is not happy because I'm still working on friday they call me they want they want me to stay at the office they don't want me to get out um <laughs> And I understand I understand perfectly and it's one of the, my main concerns but also on the other hand it's uh you know this is important information even when we are dealing with an avalanche of information that is not necessarily well treated uh, we need to have good information so people will make good decisions. We are in a very small young democracy uh, we just began to make inroads on Electoral democracy is relatively recent. Began basically at the end of the '90s here in Baja California, and has been moving to the 20, 2000s. and And now we are unfortunately back back in many ways. But but now you can rely now on who is running the elections. To get that information was very important. Now we need to be al- al- also very. Uh, make a lot of big efforts to explain people that you can make progress. Mexico is making progress even this, in these dire conditions, but you have to pay attention and also try to, to learn where the information is coming from, that not all the media is the same, that we have we come from a big tradition of government-controlled media. Uh, now, media control or subdue trafficking organizations. And in some cases, both are linked and and working in cahoots to to give you trouble. And also, there's a lot of press that has chosen to just go with the flow and just live out of propaganda. And sometimes they do good things, like they go and give voice to the people in the local community so the the water is reestablished or there's more... um, there's a no more need for to fix a park or or to public transportation, and they do do good. It's important. All the the job of the reporters is good, but in the in the bigger dimension, the bigger problem, they tend to be on the side of the government because the government found this way to give you a lot of public advertisement and to have you under their control. And many reporters want to be good journalism with journalists but their editors of the owners of the companies are not willing to risk that easy way to get a lot of money from the government uh, and, and more easily than to start putting themselves on the risk which implies when you do heavily digging or criticizing the powers of being no
4: yeah uh, how how would someone know that they're getting Accurate information in that case. This applies to like every country in the world. You have to really be conscious and like seek out particular sources. But like in this case, what do you recommend for people?
9: I mean, it's difficult. You're right. It's it's the same problem everywhere. But I guess the same uh, recipe works here. I mean, just double check, double check your their sources. Try to compare several um, media outlets and to see where is reporting uh, um, whether each of them is reporting. Um the same way that you find the the way they are leaning in the US is the what you find here but the problem is the established media or the how do you call it um the traditional media is becoming less relevant because most of the main good journalism is done by small rebels who be, they began their own entities their own platforms i mean some cases There's good reporters working for good media outlets. Normally, uh, those are not local. I mean, when you see the big media companies, don't they don't have, with some uh, exception, uh, but they don't have many people doing good journalism at, at the local level. You will find good local journalism. Uh, with these renegades or rebels that have people who have been fired from the big larger organization and you have to be looking for those options i mean that doesn't mean that it's a guarantee that they're going to going to be independent completely But you can also learn um how to read them for example there's a good case of two reporters who just were they resign or were fired we don't know exactly but they from a well prestigious publication locally they began their own operation they have they are good proven track proven uh, as a reporters you know what yep. i'm trying to say that. <laughs> they, are, they have a, a good a, track record good reporters. yeah a good, no, good record. track okay, record okay, okay. yeah i, I, like, I thought that was what you. it was That's
4: i was just like i don't i, don't, I actually don't know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, do i don't know but phrases
6: either? Yeah. 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 Yeah.
9: yeah they 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 made a name for from, from themselves doing good journalism with other publications so they began their own media outlet and some people was complaining that they were too close to some uh, state agency with the new government. And they have great information. They do good good um, reporting, but you have to look carefully and which which type and where are they leaning to. So I always read them. I just take it with a grain of salt, as you will see, say in English, to try to balance my intake of information from different sources. It's difficult to tell the people because they are not general the general public is not as involved or interested in media on in and on the newspaper or on the news like we are because we live out of it. But people is doing their life and making the 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 will to move around no? for all of us in different fronts as a doctor, as a housewife, as a teacher. And they don't have enough time to the, to analyze media the way they do. So we, I think we need to do a little bit of that, try to tell them this is, for this reason, we believe this media outlet is leaning in this direction. This is subsidized or is getting, we do that. Sometimes. This is getting this amount of money from the government and <laughs> and not this amount of money from the government. That will give you a hand to take it and, and to see who are they dealing with. I mean, there's guys who have been working for the government and now are back to reporters. I mean, there's cases like that in the U.S. Stephanopoulos used to work for the for the one of the presidents, no? and uh, the guy for of Harbaugh from MSNBC used to work for Nixon. No? So I mean, I, we see this, but in this environment, it's more difficult to to leave out those connections, and it's always tricky to be moving from government jobs to to journalism jobs because it's not. Uh, I mean, you have to. Some I mean, when in my perspective, I never work for for the government. I hope I would never have to do it. But I respect the ones that they do. But us, are, we need to be more transparent, transparent in that sense to be able to be fair with the people.
8: Yeah, that makes sense. There's this interesting development. In in Mexico, that I've seen in some areas, like uh, if I want to learn about like what's happening in the Yaqui pueblos in Sonora Mm -hmm. or in Chiapas, like these people who will just be like citizen reporters on Facebook doing very local reporting, that that seems to get really popular. But that they'll sort of blow up really quickly doing this like Facebook only reporting. It's really interesting
9: because there's a big need of information, Mm -hmm. and they know many people in Mexico have learned to be distrustful of the. "Quote unquote legacy media." That was expression I was looking for. Legacy media, the big companies, um, and and the problem is there's this uh, risk that many of those media, new media outlets, which is basically Facebook accounts or TikTok accounts now, the uh, people do not know how to deal with. Uh, I mean, they 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 are, are they have good intentions, but but they don't really know how. Journalists should work. And in some cases, they think, for example, that they, they can take money for different actors and that will help them to grow. And, and I guess you can, but, but you have to be very careful. And this has been a big problem that I'll try to emphasize every time I talk about our situation. For many years, the government was too close, or the reporters were too close to the government. The government will make Easy with a lot of privileges for the reporters, so they learn to deal with this to work in this scenario. So I, if I was close to the government, they will expedite a lot of things for me, so to speak. I can get money. I can get probably a license to for a bar way quicker than somebody who is not have, doesn't have that access to the government. I can probably get like uh, uh, taxi licenses, for example, because I'm a reporter. Because I'm I'm close. I can get close to the Movies and shakers in the political arena, no. But you, uh, so they did that. And when the drug trafficking with the narcos became another power, many many reporters began to see it in the same way. So they were cozy with the government was a power, and then were cozy with the businessmen, and they were cozy with the with the unions because they were giving them handouts or or treating them preferently or they were able to do some traffic of influence will give them some benefits. When the narcos became a a regional power on their own, some of the reporters didn't see the difference or getting too close to that power. And that has put a lot of the reporters in danger. I think the reporters are learning a little bit more to stay away from those. But there's also, with the advancement of, of social media, many people who are really crooks or that they were not very interested in doing things ethically from the beginning, that now see that with a Facebook account, with a TikTok account, or Instagram, or any other platform, you can pass by a reporter. So there's this need of information, but also is, is filled with, um, with good and bad people, as in any other case, and I always tell them, I mean, it's just the old analogy of, uh, of a gun. Is the gun bad or, or good? Well, depend on the circumstances you are using it, no? I would like mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. Think I'm not, so. not a gang guy, but, uh, <laughs> but <and laughs> I, I don't want to a... get into your your, your your political discourse about your First Amendment. <laughs> <laughs> which one is this? Oh, that's, Second, gonna, uh, that's, that's a whole, whole... Yeah, yeah. whole other episode.
8: Yeah. Yeah. Neither do yes, we. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's fine. Uh, right, uh, Shereen did you have anything else?
4: No, that was awesome. Thank you so much for all the information.
8: Yeah, and talking of reliable media, where can people find you online? Where can they find your work? Where can they find your
9: social media? The main thing is TijuanaPress.com. That's our main platform. It's just an online native media outlet. Uh, it's not a newspaper. It's just a, when we we have been changing our way of work because we began as a daily. We no longer do that because uh, we don't have enough resources for that, but also there's plenty of daily uh, media outlets, digital media outlets for the daily stories. We want to do a little bit more in-depth, more investigative, more give you context of what the, is going on. We are, is, we are in Spanish, but you can follow us on Twitter, on at Tijuana Press, uh, mm-hmm. because we try to, with our poor English, try to do some <laughs> some tweets on English with mm-hmm. the help of Google Translator or other help guys who, or other colleagues that will correct our, our spelling. But that's the main way to get a hold of us.
4: Well, that's I think perfect. your English is great. Uh, <laughs> you talked to us for an hour, and I understood everything. Um, but yeah, but thank you so much. I really appreciate your time.
9: Yeah, thank you, Vicente. No, thank you, guys. I always help us to spread the word, and, and we to be able to put ourselves to be judged by the public. This is what is more important for for us. But yeah, we don't invest yeah. in, in algorithms from any social platform because we believe and, and, and that the people will be willing to yeah. find us if they are really interested and you guys help us about in that sense. Yeah. Well,
8: thank, yeah, thank you so much for giving us some of your time. We really appreciate it.
9: Thank you. We'll be here okay. if you would be, we'll be of any help. Thank you.
4: Thank you so All much.
9: Right,
0: Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday.
10: Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. Woo! Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe
3: welcome to it could happen here a podcast about things falling apart and how to put them back together again now a, a thing that has fallen apart that we have talked about at length before is the protection of the right to abortions previously enshrined in roe v wade and uh, no longer enshrined in that and it, we've come at this from a number of angles but one angle that we've neglected so far is is the labor angle um and okay so for, for, for reproductive autonomy to exist right you need health care and healthcare, especially under capitalism, like requires labor, and and that labor isn't done by, you know, abstract organizations. It's done by workers who are facing not only sort of the mall of the death of Roe, but the intransigence and often the belligerence of their own bosses. And here to talk with us about that is Crystal Grabowski and Elizabeth Velanuevo from the wonderfully named uh, UE Local Six Nine Six. <laughs> um and Whoa. I'm gonna I'm going to read a a pseudo-legal disclaimer here, which is that they are not representing Planned Parenthood. They, they do work at Planned Parenthood. They are not representing Planned Parenthood. They are there representing themselves as individuals.
12: And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. our local union. Yes.
11: Proud members of local 696.
3: <laughs> yeah. In, impeccably named union. Yeah. <laughs>
12: Purposefully named for yeah. Space. Well they they were like, you have to choose a
11: a number that starts with six and then we just like looked at each other and we had that moment <laughs> where it's like yes and then we can add another one and <laughs> and it'll be a good time so
12: <laughs> just a nice fun little threesome yeah. of
11: numbers. yeah healthy yeah. safe it was good
3: this is our, this is, our, <laughs> this is our, uh, <laughs> uh, round one of pro-union propaganda join the union and you too can be in, 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 in union local 69
11: or what if they told you the number could start with four? Like you know, yeah, yeah, one. boom. There's just so many options. I'm sure there's other fun numbers that besides those, but
3: you ha- you have the entire world in front of you.
11: Yeah, we could have done 666. Six. You could
12: do like boom.
11: <laughs> Can you imagine if we did 666 six, six oh as my well, Oh my as a god! Oh <laughs> <laughs> We could have. We we had that choice, and we went with six nine six. Yeah, this is because this is we're the power. a se- sexual health organization. It's to
12: prove that workers will always make the right decisions. Yes,
11: <laughs> <laughs> so this is the power of the union. We
12: can evaluate these
11: decisions when when it's important and do the right thing.
3: <laughs> so yeah, th- thank you, thank you to you so much for
11: for coming on the show.
12: Thank you for having yeah. us. We're both super excited. Yeah, of course. yeah. Thanks I'm for too. inviting
11: us. Us lowly abortion workers, so.
13: <laughs> <laughs> I,
3: I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna dispute heavily with the, the, the term lowly. <laughs> like, y'all are the people who make all of this possible, so. Yeah, Thank and. You. You, Thanks. Yeah, and, and now, now, ha- having said all of this, I'm about to, I'm going to ask you a very depressing question, which <laughs> we have, uh, we've asked a lot of the people who've talked about abortion access, uh, like. Who work in Worship Nexus stuff, this question, but I think you two had a very different experience of it. Um, what was it like on the day when Roe died?
12: Do you want to go first, Crystal? Um,
11: yeah, I've talked about this a lot because I'm getting asked a lot. And it's I'm happy to talk about it. Um, which is I'm actually like, it's been hard to listen to other people talk about it because then I start getting in my feels, but like when I'm talking about it, I'm kind of like just processing it and it's it's probably healthy for me, somebody would say, but um, it was incredibly traumatic and it's been incredibly traumatic um, since the fall of Roe v. Wade and the Dobbs decision. And I'm saying this while, like, while knowing that we all knew it was coming, it was, a, okay. it was a given Yeah, and it wasn't surprising. And there's just something about knowing that it's been coming for months and years that like, just, it just did nothing to actually inform you like what would it be like um but it, it was like a it was like a tidal wave crashing and just like sweeping you away and we're still swept away um yeah. the only language that I can find that's appropriate is like natural disaster language and I just I keep repeating it and saying like it's like a hurricane it's like a tidal wave but that is the the those are the words that are most fitting to me like emotionally and just in terms of like the violence and the that is that you that people are experiencing, um, and just the, the 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 emotional and mental and bodily harm is equitable to a natural disaster.
12: <laughs> yeah, and I think during one of our debriefs during a particularly difficult day, this was pre-row, um, we were talking about how sometimes it's really hard for us when we can see these things coming and yet there's nothing we can really do about it. And I know that we talked about how it felt like we were just tied to a train track Mm -hmm. watching and waiting for that train to just come and hit us. And then when it did, it was just, it just knocked, I think the wind out of all of us. Um, I think we all cried for sure. Oh, we all cried. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I'm not
11: even like, I don't know, like, I feel like I, I I am I'm emotional and I am a crier, but oh, I didn't think that I would sob immediately the second I saw the news. And then I always knew we were going to get a lot more calls because um, Elizabeth and I also answer phones in the abortion clinic. And I was like, okay, we're going to get way more calls. But like, mm-hmm. it you don't know what that feels like or looks like or sounds like. Like, what does it feel like to have a hundred people calling you pretty much at the same time? What does that look like? now I know and it's traumatic and it's awful and um, it's a natural disaster but it's a man-made disaster actually it's not a natural disaster we've there are people who have inflicted this upon us Um, Mm -hmm. and now we know what it feels like and it's fucking awful oh I should have asked if I was allowed to swear
3: oh yeah I swear all the time
11: (laughs) okay cool because like I've been on (laughs) podcasts before where they were like oh we gotta edit that out which um, cool. well it's a fucking nightmare
12: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, um, we work in healthcare. I think we swear more than the average layman because they keep saying somehow.
11: Yeah. There's so much more to say. Yeah, no, please I don't even know where to go from there. It's just, yeah, it's like a never-ending nightmare. Mm
12: -hmm.
11: (laughs) Because, like, the the call started and then it's just, like, just, just person after person after person. They, driving, driving two hours, three hours, four hours, five hours, coming from states that are, like, three states away coming from like states in the South, people taking planes and um, people staying in hotels. And we've
12: had people pay like hundreds of dollars for an Uber.
6: Mm -hmm.
11: (laughs) And, um, and then just like bringing in the labor angle too, as like unionized abortion workers who, you know, we have been vocal and we've been rallying and making our demands like publicly known, but we are doing this. While understaffed, like skeletal crew staffing, yeah. we didn't have enough staff before Roe fell and the Dobbs decision, and now we just—it's bare bones, and it's like we are. So we're taking on this tidal wave, this like man-made tidal wave, while just giving every last ounce of our energy.
6: Yeah,
11: um, and doing multiple roles at once.
12: Yeah, I don't know if you are able to tell from the fact that Crystal and I both work directly in the clinic, but we also answer calls. Um, mm-hmm. When we signed up for our job, um, we knew that we would be doing multiple things around the clinic. And it's just, it's funny um, to not really know what that means until you start doing it. So one day you'll be holding a patient's hand while they're having this procedure done, like giving them a little baggy in case they feel sick um you'll be talking to them on the phone so some there are days where um I will meet people who I've spoken to on the phone when they called to book Mm -hmm. their appointment and it just hits me like a tidal wave because I'm like that's the person like that's this person specifically I remember because I remember hearing the sound of their voice and every single time they call in they are sobbing Mm -hmm. this is a horrifying moment for them. This is a moment where they feel like trapped. They feel like they can't share with their family, with their friends,
9: mm-hmm. um,
12: depending on what state they're from and the legalities of that state. They are even afraid to make these phone calls. Like some of the first things that patients say to us when they call in is, Am I, is this okay? Like, mm-hmm. am I allowed to call you? Um, am I allowed to talk to you? Am I allowed to book an appointment? Yeah. Um, what's going to happen next for me? And Will my appointment not, be canceled? Yeah, because we're not lawyers because we everything is so fluid right now, we yeah. don't have answers to give them. Um, we can just say, "Well, you're coming to Pennsylvania, and it's still <laughs> legal in Pennsylvania." So yeah, um, yeah. and it, just to like paint the
11: picture a little more, too, about like both the skeletal staffing and the emotional turmoil and the emotional weight of it. Um so the Dobbs decision happened on June 24th, which was a Friday, and mm-hmm. we're in Pennsylvania. And that evening of the evening of June 24th, um, a trigger ban went into effect in, in uh, Ohio. It was a, a it's a, a fetal heartbeat bill, which is a deceptive language because it's not actually a heartbeat, but I'm, you know. Um, but it's a it's technically a fetal heartbeat bill. And so people after six weeks um, could no longer access abortion services or once any sort of like electrical impulse was detected and everyone had their appointments canceled. So we were actually at a protest, like the staff was like at a protest that evening um, with our, with our doctors, our abortion providing doctors and the news we came out like, them. yeah, shout out to them. We love them. Um, and we got the news that Ohio had just did this and we were just like, oh my God, tomorrow, because we knew the second our call center and our phone lines opened, everyone whose appointment was canceled was going to be calling us. And then we we pull up the staff schedule and we're like standing in the middle of the street at a protest. We pull up the staff schedule and we're like, oh my God, there is one person Jesus. scheduled to answer phones right now. And it is an older woman who's been doing this since like the seventies or eighties. And it's like, we cannot like, and we were like all as a union, like um, we turn to each other and we're like, Oh my God, this is the situation. We cannot leave her alone.
6: Yeah.
11: Um, we've already worked our five days. We already worked our 35 hours, but we are going to call ourselves into work. And we, like, we just, we were like, we've notified our managers. Like we're going to come into work and we're going to help to answer the phones for these canceled Ohio patients. Like that was a decision that we made to work those extra that, that extra time on our weekend off. Cause it was a Saturday, but This ties into what Elizabeth was saying, where um, when you hear the person on the phone and then they come to you and like it's very emotional because like you're doing your best as a healthcare worker to get them the health service that you have been trained to provide and that, you know, is very important. So knowing that we were understaffed, um, knowing that we're not making that much money and then just being like, I have to go in and be there. I can't leave my coworker alone because I love my coworker and we can't, and like somebody has to be there for these, these patients when they're calling. And if it's not going to be the, the employer and the bosses, then it's going to be you. And they, and then we, we all just, we did that. And then, um, there was another clinic day. We, a lot of us arranged to come in for an extra work day. Cause we were yeah. like, we, ha- we have to be there for these patients. Yeah. Um, so we're really giving all of our energy. And it's exhausting and traumatizing. I can't, I feel like I can't say that enough, but, um, and we, we need more staff. We need better wages. We need better working conditions because it's so, it's like, when you, at the end of some of these days, it's like, how am I gonna keep doing this? My body hurts, my brain hurts. I started having like issues with my memory where like, I couldn't remember anything because my brain just gave up on retaining information. And I'm like, I think this is like a trauma response. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. I'm overwhelmed system shock.
3: I think this is one of the things you get with, with working for NGOs, which is that like we're doing something like this is like, there is work that needs to be done, but you know, the employer's not giving you the resources that is necessary to do it right. You have one person on a call line like the day after a fetal heartbeat bill goes goes into effect. Mm-hmm. And it, and it's I don't know, it, it seems like one of the one of the things that's that that these NGOs do is they they were really, you know, they they make they make a mistake or they do something deliberately because they don't want to pay people and then they don't want to pay another, more people and they make you go deal with it because, mm-hmm. you know, it has to get done because these people need you. And that somebody has to do it. Yeah, that's so gross. It's disgusting.
12: So for me, um, I like to equate it as kind of like being emotionally gaslit, because the whole point of healthcare, and I've said this to other people in different healthcare roles that I've worked before, because as we know, healthcare is chronically understaffed. Like there's so many like nursing shortages, like and things. um, Is that healthcare is designed to draw people who want to help. You yeah. have these like very strong moral and emotional beliefs um and we are paid to care like it is our job to care mm-hmm. um and that is how they can get all of these things out of us is because it's very easy to feel emotionally manipulated when somebody's like, "Well, somebody has to be there for this patient, yeah. this person, um this like thing that can't wait um." And so a lot of us, um, even like I said, before I worked here at like different positions that I've held, I've been like, I will take an extra shift because somebody has to do it. And I love my job so much. I love working in healthcare. It's something I've been very passionate about since I was a small child. Um, so I, for years would burn myself out and be like, I'll take the extra shift, um, Mm -hmm. At a different position um, when I used to work at a care, um, I worked at an intermediate care facility for adults with intellectual and physical disabilities um, for a couple of years. And I remember routinely working 16-hour shifts, like day in and day out. I think there was like six, seven days a week of just doubles where I would work like 16-hour shifts. I don't think I like slept or ate or did anything. Um, And then at one point, I was so burnt out that I just couldn't do it anymore. And I started to get frustrated with the people that I worked with and like the patients that I cared about. And this one particular day, I like noticed myself getting incredibly annoyed with everything that was like happening, like sounds, patients, like just being themselves. Like I didn't, you know, take it out on anything or anyone, I just like noticed myself getting like slightly more irritated. And then I was like, this is not sustainable. I can't yeah. keep doing this. Um and I compared this like recent change post the Dobbs decision to what it was like when I also used to work for distributing medical equipment to hospices. Um, it felt like every single moment was an emergency that mm-hmm. I just did not have the resources to be able to um, help with because on one end of the line, you have somebody that is having this emergency. And then on the other end of the line, there's another person pulling you because they're also having an emergency. Mm -hmm. And so you have to kind of weigh which one of these patients like needs you the most, right now and which one of those can you reasonably help it's like that um psychology like psychology puzzle where they're like um if you move the thing on the train oh the lever like, the like, trolley. Yeah, the trolley yeah. Problem. yeah the trolley problem where like mm-hmm. one of these people will die or seven people will die and you have to decide which one of those you're gonna pull <laughs>
6: because
12: yeah. There's only so much that we can give as healthcare workers, as abortion yeah. workers, as reproductive health workers. Um, there's only so many hours in a day, and as much as we want to keep giving, for us to keep pouring out of an empty cup is just not sustainable for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Like I know many of us have lost sleep, many of us have stopped like being able to focus on anything outside of work because as soon as like you turn on the news or you open your phone or you like open up Twitter, there's more and more and more information because everything is consistently changing all of the time. And like, um, West Virginia is currently having like their, um, their clinic, Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's new. And we had a couple of calls come in from, um, we had Kentucky. Yeah. So that was new. Um, and we're just starting to like, really have a good pattern of resources for patients coming in from like Ohio. Um, and now we're like, okay, well, what about Kentucky? So we just like, (laughs) we feel like there's just one like hole in the dam that we put our finger on and then another one shows Mm -hmm. up. And at some point we just have to know that we've done our best, um, and that it's okay to take a second to rest um, and to, you know, go home and maybe like watch TV or listen to a podcast. And yeah. uh, <laughs> not about uh, abortion. Yeah. <laughs> forget about abortion for two seconds. And because we will inevitably have to do it again tomorrow.
11: Mm-hmm. This reminds me
3: a lot of, um, I did an interview, like, I don't actually, it'll be a couple of weeks, I guess, by when this comes out with, some organizers who were like trying to do like relief and aid for the, the migrants who are getting bus to DC from Texas, I think from Utah too. And it was like, they were talking about exactly the same thing where it's like, we have to do this. We have to do this because otherwise no one's going to help these people. But like at a certain point, it's like everyone has COVID like we just mm-hmm. can't. And it, I don't know. It, it's, I think it's especially frustrating that this is happening because like those people were just like, they have no resources, right? It's just a bunch of people who are doing mutual aid thing, but like this is Planned Parenthood. Like yeah. they have resources and they're not, yeah. they're not doing this and they're, they're doing this. I, I, I talked to a nurse who's a friend of mine a long time ago um, on this show. And he talked you know, he was a nurse during COVID. He's gotten COVID twice, I think. And like, you know, he was talking about how like, yeah, he, he had, he said this to me like thing I've, I've always remembered was like, I've seen people die because of, of I've seen people die because of staffing decisions. Yeah. And absolutely. it's like, it's this, it's this moral blackmail thing where it's like, in, in order to, like, this thing needs to be done, we're not going to actually provide you with enough resources to do it. And we're going to make you responsible for the consequences of our actions. And yeah, it's it's grotesque. I, yeah.
11: think that um really is just kind of like part of the trauma for the workers and, and, and honestly for the patients and for everyone in our communities, because this impacts literally everyone, is um just like turning, like we do turn people away because uh, pregnancy is a time-sensitive issue. And you know you have to get in in a certain number of weeks in order to get you know the type of procedure that you want in order to get a procedure at all. And these are people that are often parents, the majority of people who have abortions are parents um, mm-hmm. and they have children and they have jobs and, or they don't have like PTO and in, they live four hours away. So it's mm-hmm. like, how am I going to get to this appointment? So there's so many people that we have to refer. So it's, it's so much on your soul to be on the phones and you speak to mother after mother, like a single mother or somebody who lost a partner or they are, you know, um, they got evicted and you're referring them to Detroit, which is not also four or five hours away. And just to refer people to say, I can't help you try calling this place. And to do that, like multiple times in a row every day. And then you're like, you're working seven hour days. It is really soul crushing because it feels like, and like you tell yourself, like, it's my, you know, we don't have the resources. We don't have the staff. We weren't prepared for this crisis. It's not on me, but it's very hard not to feel awful. When you are turning people away, because you don't—I don't know any. I probably turned like probably over a hundred people away on the phones and told them who to call. I don't know if they reached those places. I don't know if they called those places. For all I know, they continue to high-risk pregnancy and they might suffer health consequences or things that debilitate them for the rest of their life. Things that make their children's lives worse, and I have no way of knowing. So it's just very traumatic to constantly be hanging up on the phone with people and just like sending them into like
12: just a desert. I think the hardest part too, is that these phone calls aren't like two seconds long. They're not two minutes. When we, tell when we answer the phones, abortion appointments take about 15 to 20 minutes to schedule. Mm-hmm. So this is a half an hour that you are getting to know an individual, a person. They tell you everything about their lives. They tell mm-hmm. you exactly what they're feeling, what they're afraid of, what they're going through, what their family's like. Um what their financial situation is like. And then at the end, when you tell them or at the beginning, which I do often just to let them know what they're getting themselves into. When you tell them that you're booking like three weeks out, four weeks out, you can just hear it in their voice that they are so scared (laughs) and so desperate. And there's nothing you can do about it because there's just, not enough of us there's not enough clinic days there's not enough hours in the day to see all of these patients there is so much red tape that these patients have to go through to even get to this appointment there's a 24-hour phone consent in the state of pennsylvania um if they miss that they can't be seen and these are often like um depending on like the time of the phone call some people work multiple jobs they're like mm-hmm. asleep they can't make the phone call they're they, sick they're sick they um, don't have working cell phones or and, they're in uh, a yeah or they're in a situation where they're like have intimate par- partner violence so they mm-hmm. can't be on the phone for that long without risking their personal safety and it's just really traumatizing
11: and i know that it's really common on the left and with like pro-abortion people to say like, you can't stop abortion. You can only stop, save abortion. And I, I totally support the sentiment behind that because people are going to get abortions no matter what. But people also need to think about the people who give up because yeah. I, have I have been on the phone with someone and heard them give up. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's traumatizing. Cause like, you know, that you gave them the information that broke them they were just like, when I'm like, okay, you have to wait four weeks, you have to drive four hours, you have to do this, you have to pay this, you have to do that. And then just for them to say, I'm sorry, I don't want to waste your time anymore. I just can't do this much right now. It's just too much. And just to hear their just resignation. Cause you know, I think, I feel like, you know, working in jobs, you might've heard people just like reach that moment where they hit their point um, whatever their breaking point might be, whatever the context is, whatever the topic is. But like, when it's your life and it's your health and it's your family, and they're just like, this is my breaking point and witnessing that, that does happen. And it's a tragedy every time that somebody abandons what they really want and their health and their well-being, And um, and it does happen. And that's why this is a tragedy that needs to stop. And I don't know when it's gonna stop because it like, just kind of seems like it's gonna keep happening and keep going and going and going. In which case, the trauma is going to like move. Like right now, we're like bearing the brunt of it, but it's going to like radiate from us and our patients, and we're nice going to see the it. ripple effects this across is a the whole
12: country. Generational trauma that's going to mm-hmm. continue for multiple decades.
11: Yeah,
3: yeah, and and it's I mean, just on, on on a basic like level, it it it's not fair that even you have to deal with this. Mm-hmm. Like this, this shouldn't be happening at all. Like the, and it's it's that it's that like. Like all of the evil of the American settler state falling on, like a bunch of people who have nothing, and then a bunch of workers who are expected to show up and have to deal with all of their with all of their trauma too every day, and it's just
11: like a trauma palooza.
3: Yeah, and it's it's like,
11: like flags and t-shirts. Yeah. But, um, and then we had a union rally recently, and um, uh we were very open in talking about how a lot of us work two jobs and, and we have staff members who donate plasma. So it's like, we're doing this on top of a second job and donating our like bodily
12: fluids. I spoke at this rally and I was like, we're literally giving our flesh blood and tears to this whole thing. Um, Because it's just, we love it. We love all of our patients. We care about the work. We really want to make sure that our patients are going to be okay. And I think that's why we do it and also how we can justify feeling this way day day in and day out.
3: I want to, I think, move from this to talking about the contract negotiation process because like, okay, it, it is not okay for anyone to have like a fourteen month long contract negotiation process. It is especially not okay for you to have to do this. So yeah, can we can we talk about what plan like what Plan parent has been doing and Yeah,
12: Crystal why might this? be better at answering this yeah. question because she's on our bargaining committee. I'm on the bargaining team, yay me. Yay.
11: <laughs> I've been doing this for fourteen months and like just oh god, I'm so sick of these meetings. I'm so sick of them. So, so, I'm so sick of them talking to their lawyer. Um, it's been long. They've been dr- just, um, really just dragging themselves. It's like carrying a dead body. just like, <laughs> like, it's like, Oh, come on, come on. Are you, are you okay? We're going to, we're going to get there. You know, like i we're just like dragging them and, um, they are afraid of everything. Everything is, we got to see, we got to check, we got to, we got to look into it. And then you never hear back, or maybe you hear back like three months, four months later. Um, they constantly want to bring in a mediator constantly. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, there's nothing to mediate. Like, yeah. what are we going to mediate? You telling us that you got to get back to us? Like, what, what's there to mediate there? Um, And they're like, it hey, will move it along. And it's like, yes, because they're doing the job for you. We want you to do it. We want you to have answers. You to figure it out. You're the bosses. You make the money. You're the one running the organization. Um, sorry, I started getting salty. <laughs>
3: no, it's com- the bargaining it's completely team
11: valid. has has um being on the bargaining team has really nurtured my rage. Um, it's been very exhausting, and I know we're going to win a good contract because we are badasses, and I think we're a really strong union and really strong team. Um. And we need, we need a livable wage because we're, we're getting pommeled. So um, it's been really frustrating, I guess. It's like, in short, it's really drawn out, frustrating, disrespectful. I feel like my time's been disrespected. Yeah, You know, I turn up every day um, for, for my employer in the clinic. I'm an excellent worker. And, uh, and they just waste like two, three hours of my evening constantly. I could have been on my porch drinking tea or something. I don't know. Something relaxing.
3: Yeah. And I guess like, like any, I guess the other part was like, like every, every day that they don't like sign a contract is another day. They get to get away with not paying you, not bringing yeah. more staff. And it's, yeah, and
11: they're constantly I'm, trying to, to get delay contract negotiations too. Where they're like, Oh, yeah. if you do this, we can, we'll give you a couple pennies and then we won't make any you won't be able to make any economic changes until the next fiscal year and it's like you think i want to wait till next july i have a life yeah. i have plans
3: yeah i mean i think we've talked about on the show before that like one of the one of the most common ways that uh, one of the most common ways that unions fall apart and one of the things that corporations do and ngos do to crush them is by trying to make sure the fa- the first contract fails and mm-hmm. yeah, it's a union it. busting thing and it's grotesque, especially that and it is like, okay, like with capitalist firms, like, yeah, you expect them to be union busting, right? Like that, that's their job. Their job is to ruthlessly smash labor. but it's like, this is an NGO. Like their job is to provide healthcare for people. They're supposed to be a progressive organization. They're still doing this. And it's, I don't know.
11: It, it seems yeah. just really grim. Yeah. Um, it is grim, and it doesn't give a lot of hope to, I think, just everyone living in this in this country. Because it's like, okay, so there's been a, a uh, I, I was going to say attack, but like attack doesn't feel appropriate. Like they have gutted abortion access, hurting everybody, um, causing like violence to people. And who do you look to? So you would think that you would look to these progressive... Abortion-related organizations like Planned Parenthood, National Abortion Federation, um, Naral, but all of them have nothing to give and nothing. They're they're you 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 only hear bad news. You hear them shutting down. You hear them union busting. You hear them um, requiring ridiculous regulations that aren't even necessary. And it's it just, there's no, it, they don't do anything to inspire hope. So it's like, well, you need, you know, like, um, prison culture and, uh, Mary Mikaba says like, you know, hope is a discipline. So I feel like a lot of us are like always looking to like a place to exercise our hope. And you're, you're not going to get that here with, with some of these organizations. I think you are going to get it in, I think the repro unions, because I think there's a lot of us. And I think that we're, I think yeah. that we are, working our little hearts out and yeah. I think you're also going to get it with some of these other organizations like um the abortion like abortion funds and some of the practical support organizations that are really like getting on the level of patients who are patients or former patients and are like we're gonna get people abortions I think that's where hope is right now um but not with our employer
3: yeah I wanted to I guess some of the other things I wanted to ask about was sort of on a macro level. I mean, basically, everyone we've talked to has talked about how, like, the ability to get an abortion is based on like a pretty small number of people who are like some you know people who are abortion cl- who are uh, escorts who are who are like a lot of times volunteers or it's people who are like you two who are being like horrifically underpaid to do the actual work of this and I I was wondering what you two think that like, like the, like the, the, way this, like, I don't know. I guess like the, the way everyone has sort of just been run ragged, even keeping the system, how it was like, what role that played on a sort of macro level in terms of why Roe was like destroyed in the first place and what that's done to the sort of the broader movement.
11: I mean, not, they didn't do anything to prevent it. Like, yeah. Like, it's just, what have we seen? what, Show of force or strength or commitment to abortion access have we seen in ever, honestly? Like, yeah, I can't even think, other than like some loss or uh, some legal wins we've celebrated. Like, I do remember Whole Woman's Health v. Hellerstedt. Um, what was that 2016? That was like a win, and we were excited and we were like, this is good news, and that's the, honestly the last. And that again, that was just a court decision. So it was like not in our hands really anyways. So I just, I, there's so little, there's so little to work with and so little to look at outside of, I think, just some really excellent organizing from workers and practical support groups.
12: And I, I really think that our community has been fabulous this last whole like month. We, uh, all of the support that we've gotten, um for our like personal morale has been through like friends or local businesses or like people who know people who um, like are there to offer us like an ear, a hand, um, a cup of coffee. Um, we, some mm-hmm. of our doctors bring in bagels. Uh, and this is like from their own pockets. Um, we'll bring in bagels. We've had like people donate and organize to bring in like coffee and stuff. I know that Crystal was receiving a lot of like donations herself um, that we all use to buy ourselves, like food, Mm -hmm. drinks, stuff for all. People were just like sending me
11: money for the staff. Um,
12: Yeah. And I thought that was really great. But I also noticed that it came from outside sources and not from internal sources. Um, These are all other people outside in our community who understand and value the work with that we're doing and like actively listen for what we need and what we're asking for um and i think that there's a lot to be said about that
11: yeah honestly the the, the most hope and the most support has come from just like regular people you don't really <laughs> see it from anyone with anything any actual money or power <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: And on that note, this has been Nick at Happened Here. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Happened Here Pod. And you can find Crystal and Elizabeth Union at PPWP Union on Twitter. All for part two of this interview. And until then, goodbye.
1: Bean Dad, The Dress.
0: fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday.
10: Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily Podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
7: I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States.
3: Welcome to Dick It appen here, a podcast about NGOs portraying the working class and casting reproductive autonomy to the wolves. I'm your host Christopher Wong and this is part 2 of my interview with Crystal and Elizabeth from UE Local 696. They are once again representing only themselves in the union and not planned parenthood. Yeah, so let's get back to the interview. Okay, should should I should I do a incredibly long and drawn out metaphor about migrant workers in China?
11: Go for
6: it. It's
3: your podcast. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do a metaphor. Okay. So, (laughs) all right. All right. So one of the, one of the sort of engines of Chinese economic growth for a long time is that China's economy is built on migrant labor. There are, I think it's like 250 million migrant workers. It's like, like if, if, if you put them together as a country, I think like on 290, if you put together as a country, it'd be like the fourth largest country in the world. And this, this was able to happen, you know, and, and like the the sort of like the secret of the Chinese miracle is that it was a bunch of workers who were exploited horribly. And they also had a lot, a lot of these workers are coming from the countryside, and there's still sort of like, kinds of forms of like communal land ownership that are left over from the socialist period there. And so what happens is you have these sort of like, I don't know, like, kind of socialist collective error, like, collective land ownership stuff that's like basically subsidizing these workers so that they can move into the cities. And this means that their bosses have to pay like their, their bosses can pay them less because part of their income and part of their support network is coming from something that's outside of the, outside of the sort of system. And that's what this reminds me of where it's like, this stuff is happening because of this incredible community mobilization. Mm -hmm. And like, that's where the support's coming from. But that also means that like the actual, like the organizations who are getting the most money and the most resources and who are like, you know, who are your bosses don't have to do that because it's, it's, you know, and this is the same thing with, with your labor too, where it's, it's, you have these, these, like, there's this way in which solidarity is mobilized as a way to sort of like stop gap the fact that these groups don't want to pay people and don't want to give people the resources that are necessary and so because it has to get done, people will like people will do it and people will people will donate stuff, people will help support, people will do this work. But the thing that it winds up doing is that these people are never actually forced to see the full consequences of their actions. They're never never forced to like actually mm-hmm. see what yeah. what the staffing decisions like does, what what the fact that they don't pay you anything like actually does. They don't they never have to face it because people are like desperately trying to, to patch the boat together so it doesn't sink.
11: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot, like what would it be like if you know, one of our higher up managers turned away all of these patients and it was them.
6: Yeah. You know, yeah.
12: What if they knew I, what it was like? I remember picking up the phone um, a couple weeks ago and the only thing that I heard when I picked up that phone was a blood-curdling scream. Like this was like a Jesus. scream out of a horror movie. And then there were two thuds and then dead Jesus. silence. Jesus. And I don't know what happened to that person. I don't know if they were able to call back. I didn't call back because if that person is in danger right now, I'm not going to subject them to any more danger. Um, There's a reason that when we dial out, it's through restricted or blocked numbers. But it's moments like that that stick with you. And the fact that we're having more and more of these moments. Where, like, every other call is not, like, exactly to that level, but, like, emotionally yeah. still sticks with you. And is just for lot. some
11: additional, um, mm-hmm. just, like, to kind of, like, build out this kind of, like, misogynistic
6: mm-hmm.
11: context that we're working in. It's actually super common to get people calling in for abortion services, like, in the middle of a fight with their partner. Yeah. Um Jesus. I have had, had like men like actively obstructing the caller and um you know I'm trying to schedule them and the, like, they'll have me on speakerphone and everything and I'll it be was like when you were
12: training me too. We had one of those. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like
11: are you able to get to like another place because I can't hear you over him and you know and he's like I'm not doing anything and I'm like I just need to be able to hear you and like um yeah. So you do, you get that because that's, you know, cause there's people want abortions for every reason under the sun and it's totally fine. Um, people get abortions for lots of different reasons, but a very common reason is because their partner sucks and he's a piece of shit. He was abusive and they got to get away from him. And um, that's unfortunately
12: common. Yeah. And we're um, on the phone getting that. Yeah, and Sometimes we get to meet them in real life too. And that's always super fun. I always say that um, I say to patients constantly that boyfriends either go only go one of two ways. When we meet them in our clinic, they're either wonderful and fantastic and very supportive um, or they're just the worst. And <laughs> <laughs> I've had patients, boyfriends who literally, while this person is mid-procedure, will be like, you're being dramatic and you need to stop. And I like, like, they'll, take, they'll like take a phone call. Yeah. Or, or something. They'll be playing it's games a- on their phone and they won't look <laughs> at anybody. Um, or they'll actively leave their partner there. And these are people that like were their rides. Oh yeah, and we've then, had people get abandoned, yeah. Yeah, they'll Jesus. just be like, I'm done. I'm bored. And then they'll just leave. Yeah. And it's just so frustrating
11: lots to deal with we have a lot to deal with the staff and I always tell people because I I train um staff at the clinic and I'm always like we see everything here and when I say I say that I mean it we see literally everything like you Mm
12: -hmm.
11: just and I'm sure there are other similar health provisions like health services that it's kind of similar where you just Mm -hmm. kind of see everything um But yeah, we, we literally see everything because people, when people come in for an abortion appointment, um, yeah, like we don't just talk about the procedure, you know, we do birth control counseling, STD screening. Um, we provide, uh, resources for housing, legal support, um, therapy, finding therapists. And we just, we, we do so much because we're providing a comprehensive healthcare service.
12: Yeah. And again, like something that we tell patients is that they can expect to be here for like four hours, six four, hours, five hours. Yeah, it depends on the individual patient, their individual needs, um, and what services we can provide for them. And sometimes patients need a lot of TLC, and we're mm. not going to rush that. Um, they're going to get the services that they need and they want, and we're going to do it on their time because they're very they're very fragile. Yeah. And that's not the time to run through.
11: <laughs> they're not always. So sometimes they're fragile and like, sometimes they're like, let's get this done. You know? I just, oh yeah, I just want to res- the whole range of, we, get, oh, we yeah. get it.
6: Yeah.
12: But sometimes they're very fragile. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have had some really confident patients that I really like talking to though, that they're very, yeah like ready to get it over with and are like, thanks for being here. And they just yeah. make my day. Aww.
11: I love it when we're like, Oh, how do cause we have to, you know, we have to do like, um, make sure that they're not being coerced and everything. And it's like, so, you know, how are you feeling about everything? And they're like, I feel great. I can't wait to not be pregnant. And they're like dancing. <laughs> Obviously that's nice. But you know, in reality, a lot of times when we ask someone how they're feeling and what's going on, we're like the first person to have asked them that in like two years, So then we're like opening up a a space, which I'm so glad we get to do. Um, I love working with patients. I love the services we provide. Um, But it's, it's what, what sucks and what's a failure is that I'm like the first healthcare provider to like ask them how they're feeling
12: and like actually care
11: and actually care in like (laughs) years. Like we really get some, we get some patients who have been like, shoot up and spit out by the healthcare system and no one's yeah. ever given a shit and we all we all are very good at giving a shit so <laughs>
3: um, yeah it really seems like just like everything that's wrong with this country gets thrown at like you specifically because this is like <laughs> it's like, like every, every, every sort of like every bit of racism every bit of sexism like every like failure of the healthcare system like Every every and like and it's not even just like, like everything on a political level and on a social level that goes wrong with people's lives.
12: I forget good old ableism
11: too. Yeah, out. yeah. I think it comes up a lot with stigmatized healthcare, um, mm-hmm. like abortion, and then also hormone therapy. I imagine was yeah. pretty similar. Yeah. Is you're facing a lot of obstacles that are put up by the communities, the institutions, the healthcare system, the employers, like your family.
3: There's a – I remember we, we did an interview with a uh, pro-Ocean activist from Mexico, and one of the things that she was talking about was – um. Uh, she called it social
11: decriminalization. Oh. Oh. Is it kind is, of like destigmatizing? Like,
3: Yeah, yeah. But it's like – like I, I think – she didn't talk about it a huge amount, but it, it seemed like the concept behind it was like, okay, so you have legal – you have like legal criminalization, but then – yeah, like social stigmatization means that it's still not really legal because there's there's like there's you know there's like social laws against it, right? So you have to like yeah. deal with both, and that that struck me as like a really, I don't know, as a really powerful like way to think about it, I guess.
11: Is it kind of so, like a moral thing where people think like it's not okay to get an abortion, so you get like that pressure and that?
3: Yeah, and and I think and also I mean like it's not, it's 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 the pressure like applied on a person from just like. You know, like, I mean, in Mexico, is a lot of, like, people growing up Catholic, right? But also, like, it's the pressure mm-hmm. from your family, it's the pressure from your friends, it's the pressure from yeah. everyone around you. And you have to, like, socially, like, legalize yeah. it because...
12: Crystal's been doing this work longer than I have. Like I said, I've only been working um, at our current job for a year, which I love. Um, but definitely when I started... Um, there were people in my life that I didn't think were going to get weird about it. <laughs> oh, uh, no. Because I know a lot of liberal people, most of all of my friends are very liberal, um, very open, uh, pro-choice, like, very union-friendly. And immediately I noticed that when I started talking happily about abortions, people would get really quiet and really awkward. Yeah. Um, and they would be like that's great I'm happy for you but then that was like it like I couldn't and I'd be like no but like abortions
9: and then yeah,
12: they're great um, <laughs> they're great people need them it's an essential service Yeah. and so I just upped up the ante more and I started <laughs> talking yeah. about it a lot more <laughs> um, so that like, is... this is what I gotta do gotta weed out the week like if you're uncomfortable with my job like, my job <laughs> I'm not gonna not talk about it with yeah.
11: you. But yeah, that is a component to like also on top of literally everything else, like um, you know, like how hard the job is and how then we gotta like rally as a union and get better wages and everything. And then we like can't even sometimes talk about it because um, because of stigma, like with friends or family. Like I can't talk about my parent or I can't talk with my parents about my job. So it's just like this whole big part of my life because I'm pretty much like an abortion access activist and I just can't talk about it and with them which is just you know it's, it would be nice if I could but I can't yeah. and I just kind of deal with it and then also um, even tiny normal situations like getting a haircut or getting an uber it's people ask you what you do all the time. I lie every time, but that's a decision you have to make because sometimes I lie and sometimes I don't know what it is. I'm "Ah, going to tell the truth. And it's like a gamble because I've told the truth before. And then an Uber driver starts praying for me. And then I've told the truth before and had someone um, like open up to me and we have a great conversation. And then I've told the truth before and had really awkward conversations. They're like, I support abortion. I think some people have too many. And it's like, why are you telling me this? Get out of here. But um, yeah.
12: Um, yeah. This was a decision that I made for myself personally, because of this one time I took an Uber to work. Mm. Uh, and the I Uber. mentioned what I did. And then that guy um started oh like talking about me to the anti's in front of our job. Oh I I no. and they were like talking about. It was, it was actually, it was a woman. It was a, it was a female Uber driver. I mentioned this to her um, and she went up and was like, I think that like what you guys are doing is like, she was talking to the anti specifically. She was like, what you're doing is too aggressive. You need to buy the building next door. Oh my God. Set up shop there and make it less antagonizing. So people want to listen to you. And then immediately in the group chat, everybody was like, who's talking to the antis? And I'm like, I just mentioned that I work there. And it was just a lot. So after that, I was like, on my way to work at the very least. I'm just not going to talk about it. I'm going to be like, I work at a doctor's office downtown. I know. It's like risk assessment.
11: Yeah. I I feel like the antis learned my name by listening for the Uber drivers. And I've gotten Uber drivers. They're like, who are you? what's your name? And I'm like, I'm not going to tell you because there's a dude standing there that wants to follow me. So God. <laughs> you're going to deal with an Uber driver.
12: <laughs> yep. We got to switch up patterns when we come into work sometimes too.
11: And I do when I actually started um, when I call an Uber to work because I don't have a car all the time because I don't get paid that much. But um, uh, when I have to Uber to work, um, Uh, I've started getting dropped off like somewhere else and just walking in because it's just
12: too too many problems too much much. like it's yeah I got I get dropped off at like a different location like a couple blocks away from work at a different spot usually and then I just walk in
11: like if you you might just want to go to work and drink your coffee and you have like your uber driver join in the protest outside it's like ridiculous
12: Then it's worse because they know they picked you up they know where you live yeah
6: and they know yeah. your name they, yep and they
12: know your name
6: they want to shout your
11: name out the door it's like yeah. <laughs> oh, God. because yeah the protesters learn my name and they like chant my name and it, we're like i'll walk by and they'll be like the whispering my name i'm like what is this this is kind of <laughs> this is kind of kinky but
12: like yeah <laughs> i don't <laughs> and we decide that they don't actually know who you are. They just think everybody with bangs is you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So
11: for the listeners, I have like pretty um, blunt bangs. Blunt and, bangs. Yeah. But I'm not the only worker in the building, obviously, who has bangs. But so everyone in the building, it's like Crystal, Crystal, Crystal. Everybody with bangs is like an abortion worker named Crystal. <laughs> I guess that's reassuring, but also bad for other people with bangs because they might get killed. Yeah. <laughs> It's like funny, but not funny. I'm just, you got, we try to like make light of it. We yeah. all, we have to.
3: Yeah. So the other thing I guess I wanted to ask about was Crystal. Yeah. You've had like the bosses doing disciplinary action for stuff that you've been doing in terms of That's, union stuff. We're to talk about that a little bit.
11: Technically pre-disciplinary, but I mean, like, what does it matter? Cause like the point is the same is, is intimidation. Yeah. Um, it's very easy to do is to get your lawyer, get your HR. And have them talk to someone and then everybody knows about it because everybody talks at work and bad gas travels fast. Mm-hmm. And, um, then they, and the whole idea is to, and to scare people into not talking to reporters, not talking to, um, people about what's going on. And I feel like it's difficult to talk about what's been happening. Like, this is like, I, I keep saying it. It's a, it's a national health crisis. It's a disaster. It's it's a tidal wave. It's a hurricane and it's generational trauma. We're using all of these words. And then like, I feel like be, I'm pressured into not even talking about it because I'm talking about well, everything. I'm talking about how we're understaffed. I'm talking about how we're seeing patients from all over. I'm talking about um, how, how traumatizing it is. And for whatever reason, it's just more comforting for some of these organizations to hide under the table with their lawyer and just like shake in their boots and say, like, we could be sued for this. We could be sued for that. And what if that happens? What if this happens? And like for me, it's like, well, you know what? What what if someone dies because we can't get them in and they can't get to us because of legislation? and there being no healthcare infrastructure because part of healthcare is also getting to the appointment yeah um so if like none of that exists and like people are suffering because of it like i, I just can't keep my mouth shut about that and i definitely feel like as like somebody a member on the bargaining team and i also emceed our rally um i feel like there's been a lot of pressure on me and my big mouth um i feel like i they're trying to intimidate me and scare me and I'm blessed for a couple reasons. Number one, um, my dad, who is otherwise conservative and doesn't support anything that I do, but he was a union steward. And growing up, I would see him resolving conflict as a union steward, and that was very uh, influential and inspirational to me because it really instilled some good values. Even though we don't have the same values, <laughs> yeah, obviously. But um, and but it, there's that. Like I, I developed like a strong sense of labor rights. And labor activism from him and then two my first career choice was a middle school teacher Uh. so um, i taught seventh (laughs) and eighth grade for about seven years so like literally nothing scares me because after you've talked to a, a, a cafeteria full of 120 13 year olds it's like that's it that's like the scariest thing ever um so i'm not really afraid of the bullying and the intimidation um which is good because it definitely is very effective, and I'm sure yeah. a lot of people would be pissing themselves. But um, I'm pissing myself a little bit, but no, I'm fine. Um, I have a second job after all. <laughs> <laughs> that? Like that's like
3: fuck. The fact that you have to work another job, like, what? And like one of the things I noticed is they're they're, do, they're doing the uh, working you for 35 hours and not 40 because yep, yeah, so
12: they don't yeah, have to yeah, pay benefits. 30
3: i don't know like the, the the impression that i get from this and the thing that makes me really angry is like it, it really feels like like the like how worried they are about being sued it, it feels like like the fact that that's sort of like the basis of all this and just like they they, they they're behaving as if they've already lost and they're trying oh, to yeah. just sort of like like claw and hold on to whatever they have but it's like if if if, if you're if if you're fighting from the position of we have already lost you're you're just gonna keep losing and it's like and and and, and you know it's not just that but it's like okay, like if they were just doing that but then you know like not passing like not literally forcing everyone else who's working with them to also be in the same sort of defeatism like it would be different but it's like it's like no they're they're then inflicting that on you and it's just infuriating,
12: yeah I think this also. Um, To segue to something that actually had happened to me today um, as part of, um, you know, being in a call center for an abortion um, provider is that we, I think this instills like a sense of fear for providers as well um, for their own personal safety. It just makes it feel bigger because you have all these other people it'd be like, well, it's, it's like, these are all these things that could happen to you. This is what might happen to you. Um, and I think that it makes providers have to evaluate, you know, their own risks to what they do. Um, and if you are somebody with not as strong values for this work, like not a strong an opinion towards this work, it causes um, you to just neglect patients. Because um, I had an incident that happened today where we had somebody call um, from Mm, a different state mm. where abortion is not legal and they had their best friend in the car with them and they were like, my friend is like actively hemorrhaging. She's been like bleeding for days. Um, Do you have like an emergency appointment? Like we can drive up to PA Um, Like, what do I do? She's been to her doctor three different times and they refuse to treat her because the (sighs) pregnancy is like viable. And in my brain, I'm just shaking because I'm like, this is a. This is your job, like your. First thing as a doctor is to make sure that your patient doesn't die and they might die. And I'm not a doctor. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I was like, if your friend is losing so much blood that you are worried for her safety. Um, uh, I know on the phone, they were talking about how she felt like she was like getting dizzy and like losing a ridiculous amount of blood. And I was like, I strongly suggest that you go to a hospital where, um, abortion is legal since you're planning on, you know, coming up for an abortion anyway. because in that case they would have to treat you no matter what. Um and if, you know, it's going to result in an abortion, then at the very least you're protected because you're here, you're cross state lines and I'm like because any any hospital has to treat you um for something that serious and that's it's scary to think that there are definitely other other providers and other like places where this kind of thing is also happening. Um, And I just worry that, you know, um, what if I was 10 minutes late? What if I was two minutes late? What if I was 30 seconds late? What if I told her to wait? Um, Like some places kind of have to, um, or I told her that I couldn't help her. Like some places kind of have to with these laws. I don't think that I could live with the guilt of
6: that. Mm-hmm.
12: Um, yeah. it's just another another added trauma to the day.
11: And I feel like a lot of people said, and like these people suck, but a lot of people were saying that like stuff like this wouldn't happen. I know for a fact that I had so many, I'm very vocal about abortion access in my work. And I've had people tell me like, people won't be hemorrhaging and driving across state lines. And I'm like, absolutely they will be, absolutely. And this was like a month ago. And then, well, more than a month ago, time goes fast. But like, this was mm-hmm. like prior to Dobbs, I should say. But, um, and it, it it's just, when they were telling me like, I don't believe you. And I'm like, what do you mean you don't believe me? This is the most believable thing. And then, to have had people say that it wouldn't happen and to like call me a liar and like a drama queen. And then now to like, I mean, I wasn't, I didn't get a call like that, but like to hear like my coworker and like, and then just like hearing it happen elsewhere. Cause like, you know, we have comrades and and union um, siblings in Ohio um, with other unions and they've talked about it happening. And just so hearing my, my, um, my peers talking about it and just knowing like we knew this would happen. And we, I just, it feels like we just like walked right into it with no plan. There's still no plan. People are still in cars drive across state lines while actively hemorrhaging. And I don't know what it will be done other than us workers really stepping up and hopefully the community then supporting us. Um, because we can't do it without community support. Like like Elizabeth was saying before, you know, oh, and when Elizabeth was actually talking before about the food that we've been getting from the community. And this also made me think of um, what it looks like to turn up for workers in general, because, you know, we're all workers here. And like, we know what it feels like where you're too busy to stop and eat and, and you're just going through your day and you're running on fumes and you're exhausted. But it, the fact that our community was like feeding has been feeding us and like turning up for us, we're to the point where like I was having good, healthy food
12: consistently oh, yeah. from day to I day. I haven't eaten that well since then. <laughs> or before
11: and then that. it really got me wondering: like, is this is what it likes? This is what it's like when you have well-fed workers and that are cared for. So you know, if the only people answering the call for these these people who need health care are us, we're exhausted we don't have time to go out and get food especially since we got people following us down the street and whatever um yeah. while we go get a hot dog trying to bother us <laughs> um but then to have like the community bringing us food it, and then being well fed it was just like oh my god what if all workers were well fed and all communities turned up for their workers wouldn't that be so nice and it, it, it it got me thinking like like wow this is like a really positive thing that is, not really talked about. Like, I mean, we talk about feeding people, but like, what if workers were were well fed? Like, I don't know, like healthcare workers. It's just, it's been really nice. And I love our community. Um, I love our city. I love the organizations that have been organizing it. We're incredibly grateful.
12: Yeah. They're fantastic. They're, they're so good to us. Um, I know that for those couple of weeks where we had food in our break room. Um I think we worked a lot better. Everybody was yeah. in like much better moods. Didn't um, get
11: shaky hands, you know.
12: Yeah, we were all like really excited to like see each other and talk to each other and talk about our days. Um just over like actually good coffee.
11: And it was just a huge morale boost to yeah. have the community supporting the workers. And then now we have the community coming to our union rally saying we support you we want you to get paid more we want you to have better staff and that is just like oh so necessary right now Mm -hmm. because we need we need the community we need everyone
3: what else can uh listeners who are who are like want to help but are not in the industry do just uh to support you all well i I guess Um, on on two levels like one is like it, it, like what? What can they do, sort of in general, in their communities, and then two specifically to help y'all with your fight with the hospital or not um, hospital, I, the right. clinic? Yeah, no no clinic. we're just
11: a little clinic. <laughs> yeah,
12: we're just a tiny little, tiny little guy. Tiny um, little guy. I know that for us specifically, I think do what you do best. If you are a person who likes to make art, um, we love seeing your drawings. We love seeing like your handwritten notes. Um, if you're a person who makes a really good cup of coffee um, or if you're a cafe who just wants to like bring us coffee, we love coffee. Um, if you're a bakery that wants to donate like donuts or, you know, cheesecakes, we will happily eat them. Um, <laughs> if you, happily. Yeah. If you want to like send us a Bluetooth speaker so we can like listen to music during the day, uh, whatever you do best. Is what we would love as long as it comes from like you comes from your heart like we love um, weighted blankets and fluffy things and snacks and just um, all of those things that come like from the heart make us feel like it's worth it, Um, at least from the community Um, and things also that we don't have to think about. Um, because as beautiful as make your own taco kits are, we still have to have time to make our own taco. Assemble the taco. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if if there's anything that you could just like throw at us and it's already like put together, like assembled, has very little thought, like a um, a zombie or a toddler or a burnt out abortion worker can you know <laughs> put two and two together, we'd love those too.
11: And you could also follow our union. Um, and there's actually a bunch of abortion care worker unions we're not the only yes. one we are many we are legion um so you could really follow any of us and just boost what we need because yeah right right now the PPFA union like New York City San Francisco is is needing a lot of boosting with their what they're doing Gutmacher Union needs a lot of love and support but our union uh, UE local 696 um
12: our social media is at PPwP union um not to self promote but if you go on there there are videos of our rally and I made a uterus shaped piñata if anyone wants to see us bust it open it's pretty we did, it's pretty cool
11: <laughs> we busted open a uterus shaped piñata at our rally and as we brought up a a a um, union family child because it was a it was the son of a, a, a local union member uh, we brought him up and we helped him smash the piñata the uterus piñata and as he was swinging, it was like this is what we think about low wages. This is what we think about SCOTUS. This is what we think about understaffing. And then candy just like burst out of it. It was like a normal birth, you know,
12: yeah,
11: glitter and candy pop out, mm-hmm. very realistic. <laughs> actually, abortions too. People don't yeah. know this, but glitter always comes out during an abortion.
12: Can confirm.
3: There's gonna be there's gonna be like three people who actually believe you. <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna like tell their friend this and their friend's gonna be like, What are you talking about? And they're gonna be like, No, no, I heard it on a podcast. And we're like the
11: cervix <laughs> sprays glitter
12: when you when you touch it. <laughs> Dilating the cervix is really just opening it up so that yeah. it can have glitter come out. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I guess well, okay, so logistics-wise, yeah, if if you send me links, I will we will put them in the episode description. Um sweet. Yeah, and uh yeah, I guess. Do you two have anything else that you want to say?
12: Um, I don't think so. Other than like, thank you for having us. Yeah, of course. Um, this is super fun. We had a great time. Yeah, me too.
11: Yeah, it was good. I We're love talking talkers. about abortion. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh my god, me and Elizabeth on the phone just gabbing away, and it was, <laughs> we'll 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 like be on twenty on a call twenty minutes talking to like someone who who needs help, and then we'll like get off, and then we'll be gabbing about whatever for like. 10 minutes and
12: mostly tiktoks mostly TikTok.
11: but um yeah no it's it's so important to that we can be platformed as like abortion care workers as union members
6: mm-hmm.
11: as people working in a stigmatized field during a crisis it's very it means so much and it's meant a lot to me to see how many abortion episodes this podcast has <laughs>
12: like yeah
11: you're when really covering trying- everything
12: yeah, I was looking them up, and I was like, "There's, it's, it's every angle of abortion care, and I yeah. love
11: it." It we love to see it. my
12: knowledge too, and we love
11: to see it. You're gonna run mm-hmm. out of topics though, eventually. But <sighs> you really should have an episode about the cervix glitter.
3: Yeah. So this will this will be our April. Well actually, wait, our April Fool's episode is actually booked. Could be the second April Fool's
11: episode. <laughs> More people need to know about this phenomenon.
6: <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> All right. Uh, this this has been naked happened here. Uh, you can find us in the places where you know where to find us because we say this at the end of every episode. Uh, yeah. Thank you to again. You're no
12: problem.
3: Thank you.
1: Bean Dad, the dress.
0: Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday.
10: Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. Woo! Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
7: I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States.
2: It Could Happen Here is a podcast. Sometimes it's about good stuff and ways people can fix things. Sometimes it's about frightening stuff, like today. Today's a scary episode. Joining me to scare everybody is Professor Calvin Norman. Calvin, how are you doing today?
14: Oh, Robert, I do well some days, but most days not. I work on climate change, invasive species, forest health issues, and chronic waste disease, so... Most or are there problems are with days. those
2: things? Okay, well, actually,
14: you know, last time we were we talked about climate change. Solve that, so we're we're good there.
2: That that's yeah. all been solved. It turned out yeah, we lo- we locked that ocean. down, right? Yeah, you got, is, oh, we yeah. got the we got the eels fed. That was the problem.
14: Oh yeah, yeah. yeah there's like a car company that's electric. Yeah. now. we're good. Yeah, we're
2: n- we're nailing it. So oh, yeah. I get we, – we had you on the show once before to talk about how the forest is bad. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, still bad. Um, still bad. Still a lot of problems in the forest, as the people who are watching their forests burn uh, can probably uh, say, although there's other problems than that as we talk about in your episode. You sent me an email a while back. It, it took a bit for me to get my shit together to have you back on, but it was – a frightening email about a disease (laughs) sweeping through the country that could have massive effects on the lives of everybody listening to this. Um, and it's not one of the diseases that you're all thinking about. I know there's a couple things that meet that decision. That, that like There's a couple of different diseases running unchecked throughout the United States at the moment and the world. Um, we are not talking about either of the ones that are big in the news right now. Uh, we're going to talk about chronic wasting disease. Calvin, do you want to kind of introduce that concept to the people? Because this was not something I really, I'd heard of it, but I didn't. It was just kind of like, you know, animals have weird diseases, right? Cats get, you know, lymphoma or whatever. I never thought about it much as a as a thing that was a problem other than a problem for some deer. But it is it is quite an issue.
14: Yeah. Yeah. It's if it stays in deer, I will be happy. Let's put it like that. Yeah. So um, we're going to actually like do a little little throwback to the past year. Watch. Watch out. So we're going to go back to the 90s. Um,
2: Ooh! All yeah, right. one gonna second. Go back- I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get my shoulder pads on. I'm gonna get my X Files poster stuck up on the wall. I'm gonna yeah vote for a serial sexual abuser. Well, that's that's every decade. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, sorry. So
14: so chronic wasting disease is a prion. The reason we're going back to is a prion disease, and the reason we're going back to the 90s is to to look at the the most the biggest like reason anyone would have heard of a prion disease outside of like. You know, some like, you know, brain scientists and stuff. And that's, you know, uh, bovine, bovine spongiform encephalopathy, or more commonly known as mad cow disease. Yeah. So, I, you know, Robert, I'm not sure how much y- you are aware of mad cow. It, it popped up in the U.S. in the mid 2000s, but it killed a bunch of people in England yeah. in the 90s.
2: Yeah, isn't there like there's still restrictions on like blood donation and stuff if you lived in England at a certain period, right? Like there's some weird yeah. shit like that.
14: Yeah, you can't donate blood for that. Um, It's a very good reason. We'll go into that in a second. Actually, I was in England not too long ago, and I did not eat beef there uh, because I've read too much about prions to mess around with that stuff.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, thankfully, here in America, we have health food standards, unlike those filthy Brits, but yeah.
14: Yeah, we had a scare.
6: Um,
14: (laughs) Canada had a scare, and we'll we'll talk about the, the repercussions of that later, but so- the reason we're going back is we're going to look at the the most recent time prions have become mainstream. So what happened there? So let me just unfold this a little bit. That's a joke. You'll all understand in three minutes, hopefully. So uh, a prion, it's a protein in your brain. Now um, I'm not a neurologist. I am a wildlife biologist and forester, So um, I'm not going to be able to answer every question out there about brains and proteins and stuff like that. Um, But what, what, the prion protein in your brain does is it moves copper around, which is important for cell stuff. I mm-hmm. personally think that uh, mankind should have never looked through a microscope, and everything at the cellular level is just heresy. We we yeah. shouldn't look at it at all.
2: But no, I'm 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 completely on board with you there. There's certain things we never should have studied, and anything that involves a microscope is one of them.
14: Oh yeah, I, you lost me there. A hand mm-hmm. lens, I'm good for. You can like see like small stuff, but microscopes, Audi five thousand. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so in your brain, you're moving around copper and stuff and it's important for like cell stuff. So, um, we're going to go back to high school biology for most folks, you know, proteins building block of life important. So you, your protein structure is dictated by the elements in it and how they're like arranged, you know, like stacked on top of each other. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's basic, you know, uh, high school biology, but then, you know, as you get a little bit further in biology, you find out that it's a little bit more complex so proteins like, you know, all things in our real world are unfortunately not like in the textbook and these are 3D and mm-hmm. so they have like shapes and folds. Now, when folded correctly, it just the prion protein operates normally and just moves copper around. Um unfortunately doesn't always, you know, sometimes it doesn't fold correctly. And when that happens, it doesn't move copper. And so brains have a little bit of an issue because they don't get copper. Yeah.
2: And this is why all those truck stops sell those copper bands that you can put on your wrist to solve diseases, right? It's to deal with that. Yeah. You just keep that copper band on your wrist. Sure. Solves that problem.
14: Yeah. So, so what, what (laughs) happens when that happens is you get a prion disease. There are some that evolve in, that just like, they don't evolve because they're not living. Yeah. Um, They just pop up in nature. So like, uh, spongiform bovine, spongiform encephalopathy, mad cow. We referenced that a little bit earlier. Talk about that in a second. Scrapey, uh, Feline uh, spongiform encephalopathy, which comes from cats that ate meat that was infected with mad cow, um, it, and then there's kuru. I think. That yeah, kuru. That
2: one. That's the one cannibals get, right? Like this is famously why cannibals, quote unquote, go crazy. Actually, a lot of cannibals were well aware that you don't eat meat from certain areas, but it is a thing. If you're going to eat people, be really careful about the spine.
14: Don't eat brains and spines. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's exactly. The think, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's um, and in humans, it's called um, the spongiform encephalopathy. I'm going to explain the big word in one second. It's called uh, Kromholtz Jakob's disease. It was uh, figured yeah. out by like, two Germans. Really neat stuff.
2: Yeah, it's one of my favorite disease names because you just know you're in for some like horrifying shit when you when you see the the that spelled out. You're like, well, that's got to be something bad.
13: Yeah.
14: Well, yeah. Luckily, like you know, for two German guys like alive in the '30s yeah did good stuff. like they, they, you, they two of the four of German
2: doctors who weren't Nazis in that period. yeah. yeah, it,
14: it seems like one of them died right before things like the you know things went uh, south there, and then what, one of them what great timing. Stuff. Yeah. yeah, okay, so so I've been throwing around this word spongiform, encephalopathy
2: cephalopathy.
14: Mm-hmm. Um, and then like, you know, I changed like the you know, bovine, feline, whatever. So it, a spongiform means something looks like a sponge, and then an encephalopathy cephalopathy means brain. So your yeah. brain turns into a sponge, and that's because you're not getting copper, and so cel- cells are falling apart. And it, it, your brain just doesn't work, to be real simple. It's kind of like Alzheimer's. It, that's how it like presents yeah. in humans, which is why it's really hard to figure out. Um, right. And then when you want to determine that something has spongiform encephalopathy, you got to cut the brain open and look at it under a microscope. Hell yeah, you do. Um, and as you can imagine, uh, that doesn't usually happen in people. You don't usually cut their brains open and also in a lot of animals you don't usually cut their brain
2: open and look at it under a
14: microscope. Um, well, it's
2: bad for them, right? Like that's yeah. not yeah.
14: Yeah, it's always lethal. Always a lethal yeah. sample.
2: So like that's the basics of like what a
14: prion disease is. Um and then when we saw it in in England what had what had happened was uh got it into cows, cows got it from eating other cows that were fed back to them and then it got into humans cuz we ate well we the Brits in the third in the the 30s mm-hmm. in the 90s ate cows that were infected with bovine spongiform encephalopathy. And you had to eat a good amount of it for it to build up in your brain. And what I mean by that is... But we're
2: Americans.
14: (laughs) Right, right. So not a problem for Americans. I just want to kind of like lay a foundation so we all understand what's going on.
2: Yeah.
14: Um, And so what I mean by build up in your brain is like, you know, you get like one, two proteins in there. You're fine. It's okay. Proteins miss all the time. It takes, you know, brains are big, especially in humans. So it takes a while for this to become a problem. But what happens is over time... One is once you build up enough, you get exposed to enough prions that are misfolded. Like the prions in the brain start misfolding. And then slowly your brain just starts, stops functioning correctly. Yeah. It, you know, it's, it's like a chain, like a slow chain reaction. Um, so that's the basics of, of, um, prion diseases and uh, spongiform encephalopathy. Now we're talking about chronic wasting disease. Um, which can be easily described as the deer equivalent of mad cow disease. And like, when you see a lot of stuff about it, people just, it's like called like zombie deer. Cause like deer get weird when they are like dying from yeah. chronic wasting disease. Like the name chronic wasting disease comes from, cause they like wasting away. They're like drooling and also drinking a lot. They act yeah. weird. They look dumb. Um, they just do weird stuff. And so people call it zombie like deer, but they're not. Um where they're just infected with a prion disease and their brain is falling apart. It's yeah. like it's like a person getting Alzheimer's. Like you know, yeah. they do weird stuff. My grandma has Alzheimer's, it's terrible. Yeah. Awful. Don't no, get I, it.
2: Yeah, I yeah. My grandma had um uh the same thing that Robin Williams got, the uh uh Louis body dementia, and it's it's pretty much the same thing, right? Like yeah. you can just see somebody kind of falling apart piece by piece. But that probably does make the deer easier to hunt.
14: Yes. And it also makes it really easy to identify when it's in a, its advanced yeah. stages in deer. So we got a like kind of an understanding of about it. But, like, you know, why do we care? We are people. We are not deer, right? Robert, are not you a deer?
2: A, uh, not right now. I mean, I have been to a furry convention, but but I didn't commit. So uh, we,
14: we all got our things.
2: <laughs> well, um, so.
14: I, I hunt deer. Robert, I think you hunt. I don't yeah, know. I'm
2: I'm getting I'm getting ready for for hunting season as we as we speak. <laughs> yeah. So so um
14: lots of people hunt deer and they eat deer, which is which is cool and it's fine and it's important to do in, you know, certain ecosystems. I mean, in most of the US, like deer have been hunted by various, you know, humans for you know, as long as people have been here. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's, it's a natural thing to do.
2: Yeah, um, it's very normal for people to hunt deer, and it's very normal. And also, there are areas where we killed everything else that hunts deer. Yeah, and so yeah. there's there's anyway, whatever. We don't need to defend deer hunting here. I have done yeah. l- hours of webinars on the importance <laughs> of deer management. It's it's
14: a real fun subject to go into. Yeah, but yeah, we don't care about that. We're talking about chronic wasting disease. Fun right. stuff. So so we care about that. We care about chronic wasting disease because it impacts all members of the cervid family or deer. So that's you know elk moose mm-hmm. i just learned the europeans call moose uh european elk wild
2: arrogant it, arrogant yeah R- look at a moose look at an elk super mm. different <laughs> wildly <laughs> different animals like they're both very big but they're also different sizes it's like the difference between like an armored car and a tank oh, like yeah. a fucking moose is like it's basically an elephant in terms of its footprint like oh yeah it's, they're so cool to see they're but so en- enormous yeah,
14: yeah. Yeah, the impact it, it, it can get in all cervids that we know of. It's um and you know, people like you know, people like to see cervids. they like to hunt cervids. We've like to do mm-hmm. it, you know, in different countries for they're
2: delicious. They have the best meat. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So much better than fucking beef, so much better than uh uh pork, in my opinion. Like oh, I fucking love venison. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Moose yeah. I don't know if you had
14: moose. I've had it once. Oh, Pretty it's delicious.
2: Time. Yeah. Moose and elk, wonderful meats. Uh, That's actually a big thing Joe Rogan and I talk about when we're hanging out is elk meat. He's a big elk meat guy. (laughs)
14: that's good I, i've uh, I've never I've never hunted an elk I've put in for the lottery every year but it's hard to get hard to get elk tags in Pennsylvania I know it's a real surprise
2: yeah you know what I'll, I'll go ahead and reach out now it's easy to get the tags here but it is hard unless you have a friend with land that elks are on to actually hunt them as as much as it, it could, yeah anyway if you've got land in Oregon and you want me to hunt elk on it hit, a, hit us up <laughs>
14: Yeah. So, so you know, as we can see, there's a, there's a clear demand for cervids and cervid products. And so mm-hmm. in like the 50s and 60s, people started, you know, they're like, well, you know, sometimes you're not always good at hunting and not everyone wants to hunt. So they started trying to domesticate and farm them. Right. Um, cervids famously like running away. I've yeah. seen a lot of deer tails. Robert, you hunt? I'm sure you have. Yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> and yeah. a lot of like tracks that you can tell and like with shit or something near them that like oh man i fucking missed that son of a bitch by like 30 seconds yeah
14: yeah and if if you even if you drive around you'll see just they're like oh car i'm outing five thousand yep. they, they yep. don't need to be here uh sometimes they go across the road and hit them uh, that's the yeah. story
2: mm-hmm. um, and then you so, get you free meat in yeah, some so, states
14: yeah you well know, sometimes it's bruised to heck but yeah. uh that is how i get to eat some moose someone hit it with a car hell yeah um but um <sighs> so they don't like being in captivity at all not a fan not a fan mm-hmm. Uh, and so they're very, they were very stressed in captivity. And then like in the sixties in Colorado, um, at, on the Colorado university of Colorado on their deer farm, they noticed like the deer were getting skinny and weird. And that's how, that's where, uh, chronic wasting disease was discovered. Uh, Cause and, we tried
2: to fucking farm an animal. That's not so, okay. Awesome. Love yeah, it. Uh, good.
14: Yeah. Yeah. There, there are some folks who think that it's a natural thing, but doesn't look like it. Doesn't mm-hmm. look like it. Uh, no reports of it being around from before the '60s, and as we laid out, lots of people ate a lot of deer and saw a lot of deer before the '60s. So probably came from uh, farming servants. So then, since then, um, there's the deer uh, farming is not really regulated, and also deer are not really easy to keep in captivity. They like to jump, and like when fence, fences blow down, and so they'll get out of captivity. And like also other deer, they like come up to you know captive deer, and they're like, "Yo, what's up with you though?" You're in a cage, huh? Mm. And so you, you can actually see them. they like interact through the fence. Um, and that's probably how it got out of containment is through interactions and, you know, servants being spread uh, around the country. And so now chronic waste disease is found in 30 states, I think four Canadian provinces, uh, Scandinavia, and Korea. So I mm. think it's four or five countries. Uh, so, so it's out there. It's out there um and it's it's infecting cervid populations across the u s and across the across Canada and the world um uh it's real bad it's real bad, so yeah if you're a, it
2: seems like a problem,
14: yeah, yeah, so if you're a deer, what happens is you either interact with a, to to pick up chronic wasting disease we'll go through the deer kind of the progression in deer to pick it up you either interact with a deer that has chronic wasting disease, so you go up and smell them you lick them a little bit oh, deer groom each other you know they animals yeah. um. You eat a plant that another deer pooped on. Now it doesn't have to have pooped on that plant. So, like, this is a deer that's affected with chronic uh, chronic wasting disease can poop in the soil, and the plant will pick up the prion from the soil. Awesome. And then,
2: yeah, and then another deer can so come it can, in. It can just spread. Yeah. Uh, th- cool.
14: <laughs> that's yeah.
2: that's some real scary
14: shit. Yeah. Yeah, and it can also you can also pick it up from water, but it has it. it spreading in water is really tough. So. Um, those are your main vectors is, you know, deer to deer and environment to deer. Um, and that's why it's pretty tough to control once it gets into a state because to destroy it, you have to dig up the soil and you have to burn it at a thousand degrees for an hour, or you have to expose, expose it to bleach for an hour to destroy the prion because it's not a living thing. It's a protein.
2: Yeah. I mean, and there are a couple of towns that I would be okay doing that to, but on a nationwide scale, that seems difficult to pull off.
14: I can think of a state that starts with an O and an H that I wouldn't mind losing.
2: <laughs> you know, if we
14: just we're like, Yo, we're, yeah, we'll, let's just try out. it.
2: Why not give it a shot, right? Yeah, yeah. it's just Ohio. Come
14: on, it's not yeah. it's not a real state. So, in deer, well, we're gonna just we're gonna stay just in the deer world. We're not gonna get scary yet. So, mm-hmm. in in deer, this slowly builds up throughout the population, and you get worst case scenarios like in uh, southwestern Wisconsin, where like fifty to seventy five percent of the deer harvested. Uh, bucks harvested a year are positive for chronic wasting disease. And because it's an always fatal, you know, brain disease, you're looking at population collapse mm, and extinction. Great. Yeah, because it remains in the soil too. Like yeah. you know, it's, it's around for at least two, probably more years, but the studies we've done are only two years because uh, these are not fun things to study. Yeah. Uh, people have died studying these diseases from prions. Like when, they're, when they've when they done work on like uh, BSE a uh, lab tech actually uh, pricked herself with the tool
6: mm-hmm. uh,
14: and got um, CJ, CJD and died from it. So, oh my they're God. Not, yeah, they're not fun to study really. Yeah. You know, that's, this is like, we're talking like Martian suit style study stuff. It's not fun. Cool. Um, so like, yeah the, so the, yeah,
2: the stand level shit.
14: <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So, so like, you know, it without, you know, when, chronic wasting disease is not addressed in deer populations, like in Southeastern or Southwestern Wisconsin, you're looking at extinction level stuff. Cause all of the deer that are out there are most, you know, 75% of them have chronic wasting disease or at some point in getting chronic wasting disease, which is means that they're putting more and more of it in the environment. And they're more like if you're an uninfected deer, you're, you know, three quarters of your buddies are infected. So you're going to get chronic wasting disease and be dead within two or three years. So you're looking at extinction of all cervids in that area for some amount of time until it comes out of the soil that's bad
2: that but, is a problem yes
14: yeah yeah as we have established neither of us are deer mm-hmm. so why do we care
2: i mean outside of like the fact that deer are pretty important to the the, the ecology of local areas and that that collapses bad yeah why what is what is the pro like what is the risk to human beings beyond that
14: yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, we put ecology all, aside all the time. Right. This, this, is like, this
2: is the world. We don't really care about that. Yeah.
14: yeah. <laughs> I, I deal with what happens when you put ecology aside. So I'm super yeah. used to that, that yeah. being done. So the, the risk is if it jumps into humans, because all of a sudden you have a, a disease that's really hard to detect, that can live in the environment, that can be transferred from not just spinal fluid, but like if you eat a lot of infected meat from deer you know if you eat um some of the organs you can get it at a high risk so so you know all of a sudden you you have a large portion of the population that could be exposed through you know direct consumption but the other thing is is prions are really hard to kill i said they live in soil they also live on steel surfaces glass surfaces uh, every like surface that they've tested like trying to kill prions like you know putting prions on and seeing how long they live there hang out there there was some surgical equipment that was infected with a prion uh gave someone chronic wasting or not not chronic cjd three years after using it on someone who had um cjd great yeah and that's like you know surgical grade stainless steel stuff so like not supposed to hold things gets like cleaned but not like super like not prime level clean because they didn't know about it at the time so so there's there's the risk is 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 it could potentially develop into a human something that impacts humans like right now it hasn't we do have eight different variations of it out there in the landscape and as more and more deer are exposed to it what happens we get more and more variations of it because that's just what happens in nature
6: yeah but
2: th- as we're all becoming familiar with with covid yeah it keeps changing because it, nothing has been done to stop it from spreading
14: yeah and like the yeah. only thing you can do to stop it is just like reduce deer numbers you can't really <laughs> eliminate it out of the landscape because it's in the soil yeah yeah, and it, it, you, you can't you can't test live deer for it. You got to kill them to do it. There's they are developed. There are some tests being developed to determine if animals are infected um, that are faster. But I, you know, it's still it's still in progress. So that's called RT Quick. It's a protein yeah. test. That's that's much faster than current testing, but it's still in progress. So the the thing that really scares me is the other well, the other thing about that makes chronic wasting disease different from you know, BSE, uh, mad cow diseases, mad cow was in cows that were in, you know, captive spaces. Right. And, you know, you know where the cows are.
2: Yeah. It's a problem, but it's a problem that you can like with enough fire and or other tools eradicate.
14: Yeah. Yeah. And it didn't, it didn't seem to be, you know, very present in soil. And it was like, you had to feed dead cows to dead cow or to, to live cows to get them infected. Chronic waste disease is a different beast. Um, so the real scary potential here is that it's in soil so it can get into plants and we know that plants get transmit, uh, chronic wasting disease to other deer. So it could, you know, transmit it to other animals like things that eat plants. You know, for example, you and I eat plants. If you're an American, uh, you eat corn in a couple of different forms. Mm -hmm. Um, deer love hanging out in cornfields. Oh yeah. So there is an exposure vector right there. And it's you know when you're do when you're processing corn into corn syrup, let's say, um, you take a bunch of corn from a de- bunch of different places, uh, smoosh it up, grind it up, you know, you do a bunch of stuff to it in on steel surfaces, and you don't heat it to a thousand degrees for an hour. So all of a sudden, you have like a case of soda that could be infected with chronic wasting disease.
2: Oh, cool. There,
14: there's the potential the big potential damage.
2: If this shit jumps to people, which it hasn't yet, I want to be really clear about that so we're not causing too, but if it does, the containment thing is like even an order of magnitude beyond fucking COVID shit, right? Like it's because it's spread through the soil. It gets into the fucking basic ingredients of food. And we we simply, the way that we process that stuff isn't set up in a way that will eliminate it right now.
14: Yeah, and I would tell you, you really can't on a large scale like, process anything that's and make it safe from, you know, cool. pri- like chronic wasting disease. Cause you'd have to, like, you know, if you, if you like cut up, like, let's, let's, let's go back to like, assuming like, you know, it's just in the like, you, you're handling an infected deer. If you cut that deer up, you use your knife, you got to put it in bleach for an hour and then you can come back to it. Bleach is really corrosive. Okay. So it'll eventually destroy your knife. So there's, there's your end thing there. But you can also do yeah. it through your hands, you know, touching it. You can get yep. it. Um, yeah, so this there's, there's the scary part. There, I mean, like you, like as you pointed out, and I start. I really totally failed on my part to mention it hasn't jumped to humans.
2: Yes, um, we, are not, we are not saying you are going to get the disease tomorrow. That is not the. But it also like isn't like there's nothing that says it can't jump to humans, yeah. right? Right. Yeah.
14: Right. Exactly. So um, there have been a number of you know, like three or four. There are two studies I know of. I, there's a third one I've heard about um, looking at if you know, human-like animals can get chronic wasting disease. So that's uh, macaques, which are kind of monkey. Um, And when they have been fed chronic, you know, meat infected with chronic wasting disease, um, and they were exposed to blood, they were fed it, they were exposed to blood, and some of it was just injected right into the back of their brain stem. The monkeys got chronic wasting disease. Um, So it looks like it's possible. Um yeah. and then also hamsters, which are also used as a human stand in, have also been fed meat infected with chronic wasting disease. And they were able to get it. And they were able to get it from a number of different uh sources. Um, there are some really like fun and by fun I mean scary uh yeah. papers out there about like all the ways you like chronic wasting disease moves around and survives. Uh and the the studies about like using human stand ins are not always fun to read.
2: I know. And this next- is this is definitely one of those things where it's like, yeah, what is the other option other than yeah, you have to try it on shit that's yeah, that's that's very unsettling. But like, yeah, what else are you gonna do? Like, mm-hmm. you have you, you, this is something you do have to know.
14: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, the other problem with prions is detection when it comes to like you know different species, because it presents like Alzheimer's, and so the only way you know. That something got a prion disease is if you cut their head you if you cut its head open you look at its brain so um when and it, in humans it can take a long time for these symptoms to present i think like if you look it up on wikipedia it says like the average like age detection is 60 years
2: um, oh then we're good fine yeah yeah.
14: <laughs> yeah the the researchers that i've spoken to say it takes like 40 years for enough prions to build up and in, in your brain for it to like you know start to uh, show <laughs> symptoms. So it, you know, if it is to jump, if it jumps the species barrier, the first time we detect it will probably not be the first time anyone has been infected.
2: Yeah, it will already have spread quite widely, and then people uh, will, yeah.
14: Hopefully not, but yeah. So, so that that's the scary part. That, that's the human side scary part. But you know, we don't always have to get human side scary. Sometimes you mm-hmm. know things work in you know monkeys and hamsters that don't work in humans. Like, and we've cured cancer, you know, hundreds of times in mice, right? Yeah, and in humans, it's a lot harder to do because we're not mice, we're not monkeys, we're humans. So it doesn't always work like that. But the the other scary part is when it comes to agriculture and the impact on agriculture. So pigs can pick up chronic wasting disease. They're what's called a prion amplifier, so they can pick mm-hmm. it up. They can it like you know hangs out in them just fine. It doesn't kill pigs at all. But they can nothing it kills pigs it
2: but them. people. <laughs>
14: yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. That's mm-hmm. the truth right there.
6: That's the mm-hmm. truth.
14: Yeah. So, so you know, if if it, you know, as people, you know, if governments become more aware of it and more concerned about it, there there's the real possibility of, you know, agricultural exports getting hammered on, you know, exporting it because, you know, other countries, you know, are concerned about spreading it. So right now, you know, it's pretty hard to, well, it's getting increasingly harder to export live deer, as mm. it probably should be. Yeah. Probably farming service is not a great idea for their health and ours but um you know also there's the concern about spread so if if chronic wasting disease is you know crosses from humans to cows like we've seen you know like if you know bse just pops up in some cows yeah it, it you know that might be from chronic wasting disease and the impact of that is going to be huge i mean canada they were shut out of the japanese market for 14 years, like japanese beef market for 14 years following a case of mad cow disease and, uh, 2006 I got let back in two years ago and the, the studies on that was like a couple of billion dollars in damage to the Canadian beef market uh, so you know and that was BSE which does not do it doesn't uh, transfer via plants so imagine if the US you know agricultural export market, market got shut down uh, for plants <laughs> that economic damage is incalculable Yeah, yeah so that's the scary <sighs> part about chronic wasting disease those are all the scarinesses. This is what keeps me up at night.
2: This is frightening and important for people to be aware of because it's a serious threat. Are there things that can be done at the moment? Like, is there, a, is there an actionable, even not j- just like, not on a, what can our audience do? But like, is there a thing that could potentially be done by you know states or or the federal government, or whatever that would help this. Like, is there actually do we do, you, do do we have any fucking idea of like what could be done to make it less likely for the kind of nightmare scenarios that we've alluded to to occur here?
14: Yeah. So the best can, you know the best things we can do are to you know hunt deer, reduce deer populations, so that way you're you know taking deer out that might be infected, <laughs> and when you hunt deer uh, in most areas that infected, you there's a you test them for free with your state or various authorities. And so then those carcasses are destroyed. So mm-hmm. you can remove you know disease off the landscape that way. Um, and then by also just hunting deer, you reduce population levels, and so you make it you make the disease loading in the landscape lower and it less likely to spread. You know both to other deers and then potentially vector to other animals, mm-hmm. be exposed to other animals. Um, excuse me. New York is a great example of this. They had a, a case of chronic wasting disease pop up, uh, took it out. Really, you know, hunted that area hard. I think that they even brought in professionals and did some real serious deer reduction and they haven't had a case since. So it, you know, in areas where it pops up, you can just hammer it with, you know, lethal removal of animals, harvesting, whatever. And, um, you can prevent spread. Um, and you can knock you can really knock it back. The other thing we got to do, we need to be very serious about We need to take the, the captive servant industry. So I've used the word survey a couple of times. So I never defined it. My apologies. Mm-hmm. Uh, servants are members of the deer family. So elk moose. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sika deer, all those guys, red deer, fallow deer, whatever, a bunch of them. Um, we, we need to make sure that we're very closely regulating that industry um, because of the potential spread. There was a, a farmer in Wisconsin that uh, sent like almost 400 different infected deer uh, to like 197 different farms um, over the course of like four years. So, you know, it's, regulation is incredibly important um, and it's it's rarely, you know, it's not really enough on most farms. Uh, my home state here we have um you know if you make less than $10,000 from your servant farm you don't have to report it you don't have to track it or anything uh, that's a real problem cuz we are experiencing expanding chronic waste disease yeah so regulation you know that's yeah, not fun yeah
2: maybe we just shouldn't be farming servants maybe yeah. that's bad
14: <laughs> yeah, yeah i don't
2: disagree with you at all there yeah 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 um, not not a fan yeah, you know, from an
14: ethical standpoint too. Well,
2: there's, there's many. I, I raise a, several different. I raise uh, bunnies and and chickens and goats, and I help raise sheep, uh, for for meat. Uh, there's plenty of different things that you can raise for meat that are used to it because we've been raising them for meat for like tens of thousands of fucking years. Like I, the sheep I have are Angoras, which I think go back like 30,000 years. Like they're 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 meant for it. We have changed them into animals that are supposed to be raised for meat. Don't take new animals and try to farm them like that cuz it seems like it causes problems.
14: Yeah, well there is a really neat there's some really neat work out there about the about domestication stress. And like, you know, domesticated sheep don't care about yeah. being domesticated whereas like they've compared like domesticated sheep to wild sheep. Wild sheep die really quick when you put them yeah. in domestication from the stress. But yeah, like you said, Uh, maybe, maybe we don't, maybe we don't play around with some of these animals and try to force them to do human, what we humans want them to do. You know, it's okay for animals to just be animals. Nothing wrong with that. Um, yeah. So the other thing, there was a large uh, amount of money set aside and I can't remember which legislative package it was that got defeated a while back, uh, that put money towards chronic wasting disease research. So, you know, legislatures and states can be, you know, legislatures and governments can be taken seriously and putting money towards it right now. It's, Is not a lot of money going towards it because it's like, yeah, it's a zombie deer thing. Who cares? Yeah. Well, you could get into agriculture. (laughs) This is not just a
2: problem for deer hunters. This could be a real issue for everybody. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
14: So, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's kind of like a larger symptomatic thing, too. We don't really take environmental problems that seriously. No. Um. Yeah.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the scary thing about this is we don't treat the environmental problem seriously when everyone's saying, like, hey, the consequence is that, like, all of Florida will be uninhabitable, right? Like, we don't take that seriously. So when you're saying this is much wonkier, which is definitely a barrier to effective action.
14: Yeah, I did a legislative testimony about chronic wasting disease a couple of months back. No one was paying attention. But, yeah. you know, it made me feel good. I was doing something. Oh, here's a fun thing about Florida and chronic wasting disease. So Florida... You know, full of invasive species. Yep. Obviously, it has chronic disease. Like, Yeah, it's a... Mm-hmm. Come on. It's Florida. Obviously, they got to pick up a new disease. Yeah. You yeah. know what else is in Florida? Huh.
2: Colonies of macaques. There's, like, two colonies of oh, wild macaques. N- I was unaware of that. Yeah. Was it because people were un- ill-advisedly keeping pets?
14: <laughs> uh, I think one of them started that way, and I think one of them was, like, some uh, monkeys that w- had been, like, kept testing or zoo stuff escaped but there are at least like two like colonies of like macaques in Florida, which also has chronic waste disease. So, you know, there's, I don't think the chronic, they're like near the Everglades. I don't think chronic waste disease is made that far South in Florida. So there's a, there's a fun possibility of the lab experiments done under highly controlled conditions getting, um, you know, performed in, in the wild setting. We could see if, if macaques can pick up chronic waste disease in the wild. Um, there's a, there's a fun research project for someone who, uh, you know, is able to handle dark
2: sides of things. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Florida. Um, but more importantly, thank you, Flo Rida, who, uh, <laughs> and a lot of people are unaware of this, was just a couple of years ago in the Eurovision Song Awards representing San Marino. So, you know, 22nd overall, not bad. Yeah, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, better than I could do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
14: It is. I sing out a tune on a good day.
2: Yeah. And also you are not technically a citizen of the Republic of San Marino. No, but yet they offered me citizenship I would consider it. Absolutely. Who wouldn't want to be a citizen of the most serene Republic of San Marino?
14: Yeah, I I I've looked at Andorra, so you know, it would be a really mm-hmm. if we're look, if we're looking at European micronations. I mean if Andorra came knocking versus San Marino, obviously San Marino's getting kicked to the curb. I love that like dual like government between the president of France and like the pope of or not the Bishop. Yeah, uh, it's like a bishop of like somewhere in italy
2: yeah it's very funny um yeah, I, yeah you gotta love those weird little micro republics
14: oh huge um, fan
2: yeah um so okay well this has been great yeah i'm, I'm glad this is happening yeah yeah it's cool and fun
14: yeah I'm, I, I'm not usually fun to hang out with when i talk about work
2: stuff <laughs> yeah <laughs> I know, but it's like it's again, people need to be aware of this. Like this is one of those just in the same way that like people were talking about for years prior to COVID. Hey, we, we actually really need to be aware like a, a coronavirus could break out and it'll spread really quickly due to the way that global travel and transit and stuff works and it'll be almost impossible to control. Um, you know, we should, we should build structures into our societies to make it easier for us to deal with a coronavirus, which we didn't do, but maybe we'll do it this time.
14: Yeah, well, what makes that really fun, I'm just going to, I'm going to build off you for a second. Uh, you, you've fallen into my trap here. Uh, the same people who were writing about like, uh, MERS and predicted, you know, uh, I can't remember which came first, MERS or SARS. I can't Mm -hmm. remember which one. The same people who predicted that and then who were also predicting, um COVID are also talking about chronic wasting disease so it's like you know i really hope you don't get to be right on this one yeah there, i just want you to lose one of these times here bud you're a nice guy real smart guy but can you be wrong occasionally just for just for like you know old time's sake just be nice to me
2: yeah well there we go Um, that's been a fun episode. Everybody have a good time. Um, thank you, Calvin. Do you have anything you want to like plug before we roll out here?
14: Yeah, I would like to plug trees. Trees is real neat. Try that. Um, we are
2: supported by trees. Um, not the plant, but a club in Dallas that I took ecstasy at once. That's our primary sponsor. I'm
14: physically supported by trees. My, my computer is on wood. So, Oh, excellent. Yeah. There's that also good. Yeah. Uh trees like to plug also getting outside. That's good for you. Do that occasionally. Absolutely
2: get outside for sure.
14: Yeah. Uh uh tweet tweets from, from birds. I I mm-hmm. don't do the Twitter. Not so that's-
2: not from Twitter, yes. Definitely yeah. yeah. Those are
14: things I'd like to plug.
2: Yeah. Replacing the tweets from Twitter that you encounter with tweets from birds is probably among the best things you can do for your mental health. <laughs> Unless it's this one bird that lived outside of my apartment in Los Angeles. But <laughs> Anyway, um, well, Calvin, thank you for coming on. I appreciate your expertise, uh, even though it's always deeply unsettling. Um, that's going to do it for all of us here today. And it could happen here, by which I mean you and me.
1: Bean Dad, The Dress.
0: fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday.
10: Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke F Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe
2: It is behind the It Happened Could here. I'm Evans, Robert, podcast, song. Hello. Who else is on the call? What are we doing? Where are we?
3: It, 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 it's, it's me. Uh, it's Christopher Wong. I'm going to talk a lot this episode. There's also other people you are, here.
2: You are. Now, before we get into that, I should note that we We're all just looking at the latest episode of podcast magazine, which of course we all read regularly that's uh, I
13: not like a list that, I do like that they describe you as uh as uh they,
2: they 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 describe you in a few funny ways actually yes, they do It's a list of the most powerful people in podcasting uh-huh. um so of and course, got pa- me. Obviously, Trevor Noah, 40- Joe Rogan, on-
13: all the greats. <laughs> on on page forty-seven, we have Robert Evans, who and they do say that he has also undertaken an ambitious daily series called "It Could Happen Here" that takes us on some of the weightiest issues and problems facing policymakers around the world. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I yeah. will say this: if, if you and are so- a policymaker and you have
3: ever taken a policy <laughs> suggestion from us, you have a legal obligation to like light your
13: own office on fire with a no. Molotov. I do like that Robert
3: Evans no, is right no no no
2: don't don't listen to Chris do it policymakers.
13: <laughs> I do like that Robert Evans is right above the serial creators. So that's <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah.
2: that is nice. Oh, that is stable. I'm above Trevor Noah. I mean I don't I literally don't think it's like it listed because there is no way in in the list Ben Shapiro is above Joe Rogan and that's just not not accurate to the, demo, to, the to the to the to the the way the industry functions but. It's a very well, silly list, it's, anyway. It's
13: been fun reading through our latest issue of our favorite of our favorite <laughs> podcast magazine. Podcast uh, magazine, of course, made, made yeah. by Podcast yeah. News Daily, where you can get all your news yeah. about podcasts. Um, a thing that yeah. I I totally knew about.
3: I for for I've I've known about this for clearly for longer than fifteen minutes. Actually, that's that's not true. I've I've known about it for longer than eight minutes, maybe twelve.
13: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
8: Yeah, it's yeah, an amazing well, photo of Robert. He looks was like happy a happy to get
13: meme. I I was uh, was, hap- was happy to get in mm-hmm. some fine reading today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> what's 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 this what
8: what's our episode actually about? <laughs> That's a great okay. question. <laughs> it's a podcast power rating episode.
13: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah.
3: We're 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 mm-hmm. I don't even have anywhere to go with that. No, the thing—the thing the episode is actually about is heat waves, and very specifically, uh, a heat wave in China that has been going on for why this is day seven. As we're recording, this is day seventy-two. I think, but by, by the time this go out goes out, it will probably be like day seventy-four. Um, yeah, and this is <laughs> an an incomparable heat wave. Uh, I'm I'm just gonna read this from Axios. <laughs> The extreme heat and drought that has been vo- roasting a vast swath of southern China for at least 70 days straight has no parallel in modern record keeping in China or anywhere else around the world, for that matter. Now, okay, so that sounds bad, right? But it's actually worse than that because, okay, so if 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 you were to read that, you 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 might believe that this heat wave is just affecting southern China, and that's like not true. It's also affecting northern China. It is affecting like most
13: of China. It's like affecting almost like most people alive. <laughs>
3: like it, yeah. it is affecting nine
13: hundred million people
3: now, yeah. which is Chris, like Chris. Quick question: Is that a lot? Uh, so okay, so if, if 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 you rank all the countries in the world, right, the people affected by this heat wave would be the third largest country in the world, only behind China and India. Okay, okay. So
2: that's it. That's, that's, that's several peoples.
8: It's it's I fun. Mean, is it more people than the British people who have been logging on to post about it being like 85 degrees and
2: them dying? Like, I do love one of the things that's keeping me alive during this ugly summer is like all of the photos of British people just getting as red as possible because they think yeah. that tanning means burning 80% of the surface yeah. of your body. Uh, you t- <laughs> Uh, it's hard for
8: me to explain how difficult it was for me to comprehend that in california they won't serve you if you have your shirt off because it is a national tradition in britain to take off your shirt and get as much sunburn as possible (laughs) or if you're getting into a fist
2: fight as well
8: Uh, well, i have witnessed a number
2: of folks pull their shirts off in fights in london
8: (laughs) yep it's it's part of our natural uh, heritage and yeah. patrimony.
2: It's it's a beautiful country, but please continue, Chris.
3: Yeah, okay. So so you know, it, to, to get a sense of like the stakes of this, right? So okay, and like the just, just the sheer scale of this because 900 million people is an amount of people that like we like is incomprehensible. Yeah. Like, you can't, that, that's a you number can't that's too us. large. So, okay, Sichuan province, right? This is this is one province that is being affected by this. This province has 83 million people in it. This is the entire combined population of California, Texas, Indiana, and New York City. Mm -hmm. Um, Here's here's from France 24 about what's happening here. Uh, Since July this year, the province has faced the most extreme high temperatures, the lowest rainfall in the corresponding period in history, and the highest power load in history, local authorities said. So it is hotter than it has ever been. It is uh, drier than it has ever been, except and and this is the fun part. Uh, this is this, this similar similar to what's been happening in Texas, and I think, yeah, well, I mean, Texas is probably the best example of this. Uh, so okay, so it's really, really, really unbelievably dry, except for when there's giant flash floods, and they've killed like 22 people already have have died from the flash floods. Um, the different province, but yeah, it is unbelievably bleak. Um, wh- one of the big things that's happening is that the Yangtze River is like the lowest anyone has ever seen it who's like anyone alive has ever seen it it's the lowest we have recorded measurements of because like and this is everything is happening here like there is no record of it ever being this bad and this is a real problem because particularly in Sichuan because 80 percent of this province's power is drawn from hydroelectric and you know, it turns out I, uh, it's it's really bad if the rivers that you are relying on for your hydroelectric power are basically drying up. And like like there's there's pictures of like like you you can go find pictures of this. Like there are pictures of the Yangtze that like it looks like a riverbed on Mars. Like it is just just completely dry. Like
2: it's like dry cragged stuff. It's really yeah. Grim. I mean, again, this is just to kind of bring out how worldwide this problem is we're seeing pieces of this everywhere else right like texas which is also in a horrible drought has been having flash floods that have been disastrous recently because when it's been super dry for a while and you have these these heavy rains it's it's a huge fucking problem and you've got riverbeds drying up all across the southwest and things like lake mead getting mm-hmm. low enough that hydroelectric power isn't going to be reliable yep. in a huge chunk of like the, the again, because it's important not to distract from, like, what's happening in China, but because it's important. Like, this is, this is everybody. This is everybody yeah, all it's the happening time in is India threatened too, right by now. this. Yes, in India, all yeah. over. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And, and you know, okay, so the, 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 the sea wave in China, like, there's been very, very little English coverage of it. And the thing that everyone focuses on is the fact that like the, the power outages, well, the, the 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 reduced ability to generate power, and the fact that everyone has to turn on their air conditions to not like literally die, is you know it's wreaking havoc on China's sort of productive capacity. So such one has like there. There, there's an enormous, like, industrial base there that, you know, produces stuff from everything from, like, Tesla to Apple. And this is what the, the sort of the Anglophone media cares about, right? Like, everything, almost everything written about the heat wave is about its effect on, like, supply chain disruption, disruption to, like, semiconductor production and, like, batteries for electronics and so on and so forth. And I do not give a shit about this. Um, and the reason I don't give a shit about this is because the actual human impact of this is just sort of unfathomable. And the media outlets who are talking about it, like, don't seem to be paying attention to it at all. Um, so wh- while I was originally, okay, so uh, uh, when, I, when I was originally writing part of this episode, I went and, like, looked back at weather data for Shanghai. And so, okay, when I, I was writing this on, on August 23rd. Um, that day was 103 in Shanghai. Uh, like, two weeks before that, it was 111. And I found out that from July 30th to August 20th, the te- like the, the, the high temperature, like the, the daily high temperature, like did not go below 100. On the 21st, it finally rained and that dropped the temperature to mm. merely 94. I think either tomorrow, it, to today or tomorrow, I think it, it will go below 90
8: this is at night as well,
3: or no? This is this night is night this is oh, this is the temperature but, uh, of the day, but the temperatures in the night aren't going below like seventy either. Then a, a lot of times we're in the eighties or nineties, and and then you know, like uh,
2: the the temperature at night does just for people who are not aware of like heat. One of the things that's most important for like the survivability of a heat wave is whether or not it gets cool at night, because yeah. you can survive yeah. pretty hot temperatures during the day. If you're able to cool your body down at night, it's one of the re- like one of the saving graces that Pacific Northwest had during its heat waves. But
3: yeah, and, and this is this is a real like so Chongqing, which is an enormous city. It has nine million people, like regularly in the city. It's Chongqing is, it's it, the city is also the municipal like government. There's there's a whole sort of complicated thing there, but like the municipality of Chongqing has 32 million people in it. Uh, they had a night, I uh, a couple I think a a couple of weeks ago that was 94.8 degrees. And which is, again, like that is a night that is significantly hotter than the average summer day. And, you know, I mean, like and I, I want to go back to Shanghai for just like a second, because like Shanghai, I, I, I looked this, I, I looked this up. Shanghai has not had a day where the high has been below 89 degrees for two consecutive days since mid June. It has been over 90 degrees every single day, like with, with, without two days back to back, it wasn't that hot since mid June. Um, and you know, okay. So like the, 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 effect this is having enormous effects. Uh, one of the big ones, this is the most noticeable ones is like basically like any excess power usage that a city can have is just getting shut off. There's been a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of stuff where like businesses aren't allowed to open before like 4 PM because it's literally just too hot and the, the, the you can't deal with the electricity load. And yeah, like, and you know, the other, the other problem here again is like, it's not cooling off at night and if it's not cooling off at night. Yeah, like the, this, this is the thing that kills people. Um, yeah. And so one th- well, of the things I want to talk about this is just like looking at this, w- looking at what this looks like on like a very, very granular individual level, because this stuff also just sort of gets ignored. Um, there is a really horrible story in six tone, which is like I, it's hard to describe them. So six tone is a state media outlet, but they're like, I don't know, You I, I guess you consider them like they're, they're like the left wing state media outlet. Which means that, like, they, they have somewhat more, ed- like, editorial independence than, like, something like China Daily or, like, a lot of the other state-run things. And they, like, they criticize the government a lot more <laughs> than uh, most of the sort of state-run outlets. And th- they did this story about a migrant worker who was working at a freight depot about, like, he's this, is, this is depot is about, like, two and a half hours outside of Shanghai. And, okay, so he, he he's, he's working and... It is you know it is it is unbelievably hot. I think I think the last day that he's working here, it's 104 degrees, and that night it only cooled off to 84. Here's from Six Tone about sort of just the conditions that people are working in here. On the hottest days, the temperature inside the carriages is, is at least 50 degrees Celsius, which is 122 degrees Fahrenheit. Says Yu Yidong, a worker from Jiangxi, another inland province. It feels like you're on fire standing here around noon. His employer, an outsourcing agency. Hands out heat stroke prevention drugs, which he takes twice a day. At the freight depot, managers sit in air conditioned rooms, but workers like him rest under trees. The office is not for us, Yu says. Now, okay. In theory, under Chinese law, uh, if if it hits 104 degrees, outdoor work is supposed to immediately stop, and you're supposed to move everyone indoors and like give them water and stuff. Because it turns out, if you're working uh, like a hard manual labor job outside in 104, uh, you might die. But, you know, you're and you're also you're supposed to get paid heat breaks and like, you know, as as anyone who is familiar with, for example, how American farm labor works, uh, you know, what happens is about to happen next. Uh, It turns out that, you know, okay, so you can take a break, but your employers won't pay you for it because like they don't like who's 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 going to who's going to actually force them to do it. Jong, who's the 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 worker, the story is about, you know, is extremely poor. His family is poor. He's trying to support a family like back home because, again, he, he's a migrant worker and he, you know, he, he, can't, he can't afford to take a break on his shift so he doesn't die. And so he he literally collapses on the job and then gets back up and finishes his work. And he tries to cool down by, like, laying in his tiny, un, un- conditioned apartments with, like, an electric fan pointed at his head. And he died on a bed that was held up by two broken cinder blocks, making maybe $4 an hour. Oof. Yeah. And, you a know, workers'
2: paradise.
3: Yeah. And, and I mean, the th- you know, the thing about this, right. Is, so in theory, he's working for uh, for a state owned company. Right. But, you know, as 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 we talked about, like a little bit in the, the sort of quote earlier, he's not actually working for the state owned firm. What he's working for is one of these like labor agencies, which are these like sort of contracting things that allow you to actually get a job. But, you know, what, what, what happens is that the state owned firms like outsource labor to the to these contracting firms. And the contracting firms just like pick people up and bring them to the site. But this means he doesn't have a contract. And the problem is, if you don't have if you don't have a contract, right, you can't get any government benefits. You can't get uh, insurance. And it turns out this matters because, uh, you know, China China has like a payout, right? that They're supposed to pay to families when, you know, if, if, if someone dies in the job. But, you know, it's almost impossible to collect, especially if you don't have a contract. It is it is almost impossible to to get this thing. Um and you know like th- this is this is how like most of the chinese economy works uh, the chinese journal Chuang calculated that in Dongguan, which is one of like china's big industrial cities if, if companies actually paid out the insurance benefits they were legally required to pay out uh, it it would cut corporate profit by 50% and bankrupt like most of the companies working here so, you know the, the entire economy is based on this and Zhang's family drives like 350 miles to the city where he died and starts like harassing government officials and bosses for like literally weeks. They are trying to get people to like, Hey, you know, will you pay out the insurance money you're legally required to pay us? And they refuse, uh, like the local officials like won't even give them like surveillance footage of like what, like of, of him on the job dying. And, you know, after, after like, Several weeks of this, like four or five weeks, they're finally able to get a sixth of the money they're supposed to get if you die. If someone dies under sort of like this, they're able to get a sixth of the money that you're supposed to get under Chinese law if one of your family members dies in the workplace. And you know, I'm I'm focusing on this story because it's it's one of the few stories that we have directly about sort of the sheer magnitude of the suffering the heat wave is, is is causing. And. Part of, part of what's going on here is that we don't know what the death toll of the heat wave is. There's, there's nothing about it, right? You'll, you'll see a couple of reports I'll talk about like two or three heat-related deaths. But it's, it is literally impossible that there, there are that few deaths. Um, there, there, there was a study in the journal Lancet that was looking at uh, heat-related deaths in China over the last uh, 30 years. And it showed that like heat-related deaths have, died, have increased by a factor of four since 1990 – and, you know so there, there was there, there was another heat wave in China that was like pretty bad in 2019 and uh, they they calculated that uh, 26,800 people had died from heat related deaths. Jesus uh-huh. and you know and again that, that that heat wave the 2019 heat wave was pretty bad. Uh, this heat wave like it has just utterly destroyed every single record that heat wave set like it it is in like its own universe of heat waves so it has killed it like probably by the end of this it will have killed like tens of thousands of people yep and yeah which, which is really bleak and you know and I mean I think like part of the reason also I wanted to talk about like the specific th- story is that like you know so the the weather itself like is trying to like is is enough to kill you right but like okay so like, this, like this kind of heat is survivable if like, you know, if, if, if you're in a situation where you can be inside and where you can be hydrated and stuff like that, but you know, Hey, capitalism exists. That means you have to keep working during this shit and that's just going to keep killing people. Um, I, I wanted to sort of also look at sort of some of the historical heat waves to, to, to also to get a sense of how many people like probably died in this one. Um, I think like. Maybe the most famous heat wave, like, in, in my lifetime, well, until this one, I guess, was a heat wave in Europe in 2003. And that one killed something like 70,000 people. Um, And, and th- there's a lot of very interesting stuff that we learned from this heat wave about what heat waves do, sort of, in general. Uh, the, the United Nations, like, Environmental Program, like, released a report about this. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff in it. I mean, okay, so the, the obvious one is that this has a massive effect on agriculture. Which, okay, yeah, like... You can ask a four-year-old and they will tell you that uh, this is bad. And this is happening – this is affecting China right now too because um, this drought is hitting like right in the middle of a lot of China's breadbasket. So yeah, there, there's all these sort of like downstream effects that we'll see later. Um, One of the other fun parts about so – this, this is from the 2003 heat wave. Uh, I'm just going to read this quote. Mass of alpine glaciers decreased by 10% in 2003. And yeah, okay. So you know what, what you're seeing here, right? Is this sort of sickler thing where each, each heat wave, you know, does things like melt glaciers, right? And that makes the next heat wave worse because when, when you, when you lose glacier mass, you're, lo- you're, you're, you're losing surface area that reflects light, which increases the level of warming. And this is sort of, you know, this is one of the sort of feedback loops that we're, we're, we're dealing with. Um, Uh, You know, another thing that we've been seeing a lot in the U.S., uh, 2020 had this like pretty badly. I mean, I guess like anyone who lives in the Pacific Northwest like understands this. Uh, There's just there are just fires constantly because it turns out that when it's really hot, things just light on fire. In the the, the 2003 one, there were twenty five thousand fires and they burned something like six hundred fifty thousand hectares of forest. And even the places it didn't burn, uh, it it causes sort of like severe, uh, severe ecological damage to these forests because like the, 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 the the heat leaves trees, for example, like a lot weaker than they're supposed to. I mean, this leaves them vulnerable to things like plagues and to like into the waves of insects. And this, you know, like everything that's happening here with these heat waves, like weakens the environments that are supposed to be sort of like mitigating the effects of climate change. Um, we, we, so we also like on the sort of like human front we, we talked about how uh, heat waves can knock out hi- uh, uh heat waves can knock out hydroelectric power it turns out uh they can also knock out nuclear power plants because nuclear power plants rely on like dumping their cooling water back into rivers now th- there's like there's there's legal limits on how hot like the water that you can dump into these rivers is supposed to be because it turns out you know if you, okay if you dump a bunch of boiling water into a river it's going to kill everything in it but as the sort of cooling process, like gets more difficult because the, the water levels are lower. Uh, you have to take power plants offline because otherwise you're going to just kill everything in the river when you, when you're venting your sort of exhaust heat and into it got in 2003, it gets bad enough that like a bunch of companies get exemptions, right? They're like, okay, it's an emergency. We can turn this on. We can like, we can vent all this hot water back in the rivers. But you know you can only do this so many times before you irrevocably fuck up the eco- ecosystem of the river and again this is this is this is the problem right like you you you, you get you getting into these feedback loops you're destroying it you're destroying the ecosystem you're destroying the river ecosystems this also again has problems with like it reduces its it's it's, it's the river's ability to serve as a carbon sink and but but it's like you know but what choice do you have right because your like ener- energy consumption treat heat waves massively increases because you need to cool yourself down. You need air conditioning. You need things like fans or people are going to die. And so the, the, like ev- every single one of these like heat waves just sort of spirals. Yeah, I guess the, the last thing I wanted to talk about is something that we haven't. I, I, I We talked about this in like the very, very early episodes of the show, but like haven't talked about much since, which is wet bulb temperature. Oh, yes.
8: Oh,
2: yeah.
3: Yeah. So for 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 people who don't remember what this is, um
2: I mean we were talking a little bit about it earlier and that when you can't cool down at night like that's yeah. one of the big things about a wet bulb temperature, but yeah, it's it's more complicated than that.
3: Yeah. So like I guess the, the basics of it is that okay, so your body like cools itself down by sweating. And when when the water evaporates off your skin, it cools you off. And this is one of the big ways that your body sort of keeps your internal temperature under control. The problem basically is, uh, what if your sweat can't evaporate, and that that brings us to uh, what what web bulb wet bulb temperature is. Uh, here here's NASA quote: wet bulb wet bulb temperature is the lowest temperature to which an object can cool down when moisture evaporates from it. So what what it's measuring for us is how cool our bodies can actually get from sweating. Uh, the problem is that. At a wet bulb temperature of about 97 degrees Fahrenheit, your sweat stops evaporating and you can't cool yourself, and this kills you really, really fast. Um, here's NASA again talking to uh, Colin Raymonds, who's from who's, – I, I think he does climate stuff at the at, uh, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Once wet bulb temperature exceeds 35 degrees Celsius or 95 degrees Fahrenheit, no amount of sweating or other adaptive behavior is enough to lower your body to a safe operating temperature, said Raymond. Most of the time, it's not a problem because the wet bulb temperature is usually five to 10 degrees Celsius below body temperature, even in hot, humid places. But, you know, and it's a point to note here, by the way, that like the wet bulb, wet bulb temperature is like not the same thing as regular temperature. Um, it, It's it's measuring something like that's different from how hot it is. and And it's worth noting that like the current heat waves, like they're really bad, but it hasn't really been hitting the wet bulb temperature hasn't really been hitting the place places where they just are absolutely lethal and start killing hundreds of thousands of people but that is going to happen right even even in sort of like if even, even even in the even in the climate models where you know we act we keep emissions to like two degrees right which which at this point is looking like some of the optimistic models like this stuff is going to happen in the next 30 or 50 years and unless something drastically changes like we're 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 going to watch this happen. We're we're gonna watch countries hit these temperatures, we're going to watch enormous numbers of people fall over dead. And yeah, this is um this this is where climate change is heading and it sucks. And the heat waves that are that are hitting China, the heat waves that are hitting India, the heat waves that we've seen here are like this is this is as good as it's going to get. It's just going to keep getting worse. I I, I I guess I should back up one second and talk a bit about the Chinese heat wave, which is that like the Chinese heat wave isn't just like a is it just a climate change thing? There's other stuff going on here. There's 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 like a very specific like confluence of like weather phenomena and like the La Nina and stuff like that that like coincide, had to coincide to make a heat wave this bad. But the, the problem is like that stuff is all going to happen again. And you know, so we're we're, just, we're gonna we're gonna get like, yeah, we're 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 gonna keep getting heat waves like this, and yeah, unless we do something differently.
2: Yeah, I mean we Ooh. won't. Uh, I mean we'll, you know, we'll twiddle around the edges. Um, the Biden administration snuck some language into the 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 inflation bill that might allow the federal government to regulate CO2 still after the Supreme Court said they couldn't, but maybe not. Could you, Chris, would you, why, why don't we send a message to the people in Shanghai and let them know that? That'll that'll yeah. help. <laughs> they'll they'll yeah, feel better. Policymakers, <laughs> to the yeah, yeah, the yeah.
8: policymakers who listen to the podcast.
2: Yeah, um, all the policymakers who listen to the podcast. Yeah. I don't know, like, it, this is, it's one of those, if we were to take, if all of the policymakers who listen to our show were to take uh, all of our advice immediately, um, and we were to transition every city away from being vehicle-centered and, like, effectively cut our emissions by 70, 80% or more, we would still be locked in to escalating heat waves like this all over the world for the rest of our natural lives because of the way the carbon cycle works. Um, not that that wouldn't help in the long run, but it would certainly not like, that's one of the things that's so scary about this is we're all girding ourselves for the inevitability that this will just become more common and more devastating.
13: So true. Um, and for everyone that has a hard time breathing, there is always, always the hope that via geoengineering, we can just pump more pollution into the air to reflect more sunlight. Which will increase a whole bunch
2: of other diseases. You know, because- I watched the first seven seconds of the movie Snowpiercer, and that does seem like an idea that would work.
6: <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny when,
3: when, when I was in school, I read like I read one of the first papers that was talking about this, and like the guy in the paper is like the opening of the paper is him literally going, "This is a bad idea. We should only do this if there's literally no other choice," and then also. Like, this is a thing we do for, like, 10 years to buy us more time to deal with regular climate change. And then as the years have gone on and as nothing has happened, you just get to watch, like.
2: Well, yeah, uh, there's um, Barack Obama's favorite book, Ministry for the Future, uh, which is a legitimately <laughs> very good book. It's just funny that he likes it because it absolutely embraces terrorism in defense of technology. Like-
13: killing politicians it, it, <laughs> no, like, <laughs> it,
2: it embraces sneaking into the house of oil and gas executives and murdering them in the night like half of as the characters, well as a wonky carbon crypto uh fucking investment portfolio but like there's a lot of different ideas in that yeah book. like
3: like a lot of the characters in that book would have killed
2: obama like mm-hmm. it's yes it's, it's, it's very a very funny. like um but one of the things that book deals with so the, the inciting incident of that book is a horrible wet bulb Um, moment in India that kills, I think it's millions of people, just like a nightmare disaster. Um, And one of the things the Indian government does as a result against the express wishes of the global community is start, like, essentially like an atmospheric seeding program in order to mitigate how bad the heat waves are. And, like, there's a bunch of consequences to that. And I kind of think one of the things that's most realistic about that book is as we have more shit like this happen, you will have nations on their own carry out climate mitigation efforts that could have serious effects on other countries because any of this stuff you do like if you if you if you seed clouds in the southwest or whatever in order to increase rain to raise the level at Lake Mead um that will like you can't fuck with the water cycle like that and it not have impacts other places um and and this is a thing that certainly global law like like the international legal system is not ready to deal with um, and it's certainly something that our media ecosystem is not ready to deal with. And it it, it it will happen. This is an inevitability, in my opinion.
13: I mean, yeah, one of the things that we yeah. do want to talk more about is the the reaction to this type of thing is going to be by capitalist countries and like the climate Leviathan model is going to be to basically privatize the atmosphere and privatize the sky um, and different ways that that's con-
2: skyvatize. Sure, uh, mm-hmm. but in terms I, of I all, I saw of, pure hate in your face there, Garrison.
13: <laughs> <laughs> but between all of There's... like the corporate like space projects and then stuff with geoengineering, it's just going to be renting out sections of the atmosphere so that the people can pump things into uh, to. For whatever for whatever kind of carbon neutral thing they want to do or yeah. Pumping
2: shit into the atmosphere is what got us into this problem and it's what's gonna get us out. (laughs) So true.
8: Make money somehow. It's uh it's kind of funny that in the US, which I don't know if you saw this, but like this month, uh which we're recording this in August, uh there was a discussion about how the water was gonna be used in the Colorado River by the various states that are I did I did
13: read that. Yeah, was a very, it, very depressing it, report.
8: It's it's <laughs> fucked yeah, up. Yeah, <sighs> yeah. it just, I it ended with like basically each of them chest thumping at each other and being like, "No, fuck you! I'll take as much water as I want. I'm upstream of you." Uh, I think Utah were the ones particularly, uh, yeah, like belligerent in that case. But yeah, it it is the opposite of what we need to do. But here we are doing it. I was in Utah last this month uh looking at new golf courses being built uh, by Fisher Towers out in the desert there, and it's great. There's
3: a fun – okay, so uh, Andreas Baum's last book before he kind of went off the, like, weird eco-Leninist rails uh, was called Fossil Capital, and he there, he has a really interesting argument that, like, one of the reasons that we got into this mess in the first place, and one of the reasons, like, country companies started adopting coal was that even though coal was less efficient as, like – a source of electricity than having like water mills water like having a succession of water mills going down the same river requires a bunch of different corporations to like coordinate with each other and they don't want to do that and because sort of like the 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 laws around who controls rivers is really sort of unclear like they were just like now screw this we're just gonna use coal even though it's worse And the fun part about this is now we get to get this again with like river law where it's like, oh, hey, it turns out that uh, capitalists and capitalist states are just utterly incapable of like sharing resources with each other. And they're just going to try to section off increasingly large parts of it, which is going to go increasingly badly.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's like one of the things you're the, the failure to be able to imagine anything that exists outside of a profit and loss kind of mentality um is is one of the major problems that we have like all over with this. Like there's right now one of the big stories coming out of the UK is that as a result of the war in Ukraine and gas prices, the cost of heating is has risen fucking massively. This is a problem for all of Europe. Um and a lot of families in the UK are looking at the numbers I've seen are anywhere from like 4,000 to even 6, 7,000 pounds to heat their houses during the winter, which is like 10 to 15,000 real dollars. It's a lot of money. Um, And it's substantially in excess of of what they have been paying in the past. And it's like that is enough. I mean, imagine yourself, how many people I'm going to guess it's a small fraction of people listening who could afford an extra ten to twelve thousand dollars in bills this winter and not have it completely fuck their lives up. So obviously people cannot pay for their heating um this winter and like if you can't pay a bill you're not going to pay a bill right that's one of the laws of the iron laws of Finex: bills that can't be paid won't be paid so the state is coming in but the state is not again these company, basically all of these companies are would be essentially insolvent like if things were allowed to proceed naturally so the government's going to have to do something but the thing the government isn't going to do is like actually nationalize any of these heating companies it's it's just going to like pump more tax anyway it's 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 the same thing it's a failure to kind of imagine anything outside of this well maybe if capitalism has broken down around this issue this isn't an issue that should continue to be in the hands of corporations yeah well
3: and but the, the fun part about this too is that like okay it's like well okay well okay we'll nationalize this and that will save us and then you look at like what, what do act, What do most of the world's nationally owned corporations look like? And it's like, well, okay, so the government owns like fifty one percent of the stock, but then it functions exactly like a normal company.
2: Well, right, and I'm not like, saying like the, the yeah. solution is is not. Sorry, James, you're yeah. you're the actual Briton in this room.
8: Yes, uh, it's just kind of funny because in Britain, people uh, living on state pensions or a certain other like state programs, state disability and stuff, get a. Uh, winter fuel allowance normally and the winter fuel allowance is scheduled to go up like like less than a tenth of that that, that amount that you just said would be the uh, the increase in the cost of heating right and it's still sort of it's just so funny to see like in theory britain has several political parties all of them especially with labor under Keir Starmer, are like are clustered under a neoliberal consensus and, and Keir that like th- rather than considering doing anything they are bickering over like how much of a pittance they want to throw to poor people.
2: Uh, Yeah, I mean, yes. Yeah, yeah. it's also
8: very funny that Britain did build a desalination plant in the Thames estuary um, and forgot to account for the fact that due to it being an estuary, the river coming in and out, uh, the levels of salt in the water would change uh, and that would make the desalination. Oh my God. (laughs) And it's fucking, I think it's biodiesel
2: fueled. It's
8: just oh, awesome. No. <laughs>
2: it's magnificent.
8: Yeah, we've got great leaders over there and we don't need to change.
2: Yeah, no, you you, you seem to, whenever I think of countries that have their shit together, I think the UK. Um, yeah,
8: you've got yeah. to remember that Nazis used bicycles when you're considering uh, your options for transport and climate change in the future. <laughs> <laughs> Deranged British tweets of the day.
6: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I mean, hey, okay, look, look the 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 one the one very dim silver lining is that maybe this will cause the British the entire British political system to collapse. Like, yeah, but you that never happens know.
2: like we, twice a year,
8: right? Well, no, but 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 hey, I mean, like, what like is this, collapse here. Well,
3: like, okay, here's the thing, right? If 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 you have enough people who the government is trying to pay their bills, they start throwing Molotovs at stuff. Like this is a it's, yes. like it, this, this is actually a, a pretty reliable like what one of the very reliable things that gets people to go fight police is like you've suddenly increased the price of gas that they either need to drive or need to like heat their houses. So maybe I don't know
8: yeah. but then British people will also be barking for us to send the troops against the people who are protesting for the right to yeah live with dignity. It's one thing we love to do.
3: Yeah, the, it's it's a it's a it's a fun it's a fun country.
8: Oh uh, yeah, it's Not a fun tree. Mental That's
2: Oh man. <laughs> all right. Well, and are we are we are we good? Have we have we solved this one for all the policymakers who listen to our show? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Throw a brick at your sheriff. <laughs> yeah. Um. Hit me up, right. fucking Lindsey Graham. A uh, huge <laughs> fan of the pod, Lindsey Graham. Yeah. Uh, Get really... a Molotov if you're old. Yeah, uh, Lindsey Graham's actually just voted to subsidize Molotov cocktail production. So oh, thank you, thank you, Lindsey, our our based fan uh, of the policymakers who listen to our show.
8: He must have been looking at the research.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's yeah. The only way—it's the only real way to stop climate change. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the only
8: legitimate use of fossil fuels is in Molotov yeah. cocktails. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe.
12: It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen
0: Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. A new season of Bridgerton is here.
1: Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
3: Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was
4: we'll good.
5: But be careful because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano!
6: Huh? Oh. Gene!
7: I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin.
5: And I'm David Gura. Listen to the big take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.